Exodus for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today we're going to hit all three M's. We're going to start things off with some mutants over in X-Core number three before taking a look at some magic in the pages of Moon Knight number one and finishing it off with an interview with Terry Blas covering the Marvel side of things. First things first, X-Core is on its third issue, but kind of only its second if you think about how the second issue was actually a absorbed into the gala. It's amazing to get to see this title come into its own, and we guys hope you enjoy this next segment as much as we enjoyed making it. And if you did, don't forget to give us a subscribe and a like over on YouTube for our amazing series, The Daily X, where you can check out more content every day. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to another segment of Access for Podcast, where we talk about mutants, marvels, and magic. I'm Nathan. You can find me online at Dazzler AOA on Twitter and Instagram. And my name is Raven, aka Dame Red Bento, D-A-M-E-R-E-D-B-E-N-T-O. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, kind of all over the place. Come find me. I love to talk. Once you get me started on the subject, trust me, there is no stopping me. Hi, Kyle, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And finally, we have John. Hi, you can find me at, at, at Lost in Krakoa, just, just like the island. And yeah, I'm excited to be here. Woo! Today we are covering X-Core 3. X-Core 3 was written by the amazing Teeny Howard. If you guys don't follow her on Instagram, I love her aesthetic. It's like goth chic. I love it. Oh, We have Valentine Delandro as the artist. We have Sunny Go as the color artist. VCs Clayton Cowles as the letterer. And of course, as always, Tom Muller on overall design. David Aja did the cover art, and variant cover art was by Mike Del Mundo. So, like, uh, I love the cover art. That was I do was, love the cover art. The, yeah, cover the, cover arts, the covers are great. And yeah. I really like yeah. the milligram next to to the edition number. Right. It it reminds me so much of like that 1950s, 1960s green printing. It just, oh. yeah, it's just, yeah, that's what it gives me. And I'm like, it's really great that they actually followed some of like the, the 1950s, 1960s design work, like the interlocked little men that they have in that repeating pattern. That's totally awesome. And yeah, it looks like it looks like old school screen printing. So I think it was a really a genius move to design the cover like this because it does really hearken you back to the days of big corporations and and kind of days gone past. <gasps> Wait, are you saying that this book is Mad Men? Is that what you're saying? It, it is so close to being Mad Men in a lot of ways. So yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a decent analog. 
which is probably why I dislike certain <laughs> characters. <laughs> I'm like, uh, oh, yeah. You know what? That makes way more sense now. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I, now it's all fitting together for me. Now, like, I'm mm. like, that was the piece I needed because I've, I've been struggling. I've been struggling. I don't know about you guys, but I've been oh, struggling yeah. to find the rhythm of this book. I really mm -hmm. liked issue two. Issue two mm -hmm. was fun. The inclusion of mastermind on the board was a nice little touch yes. mm -hmm. but issues one and three just didn't do it for me but now that yeah. now that i've got that little like oh that's the vibe they're going for it, it's clicking a little bit more now where are y'all at on this I'm I'm kind of at the same place as you are nathan issues one and three were kind of i was having a really difficult time clicking with it but i i enjoyed issue two so but I, I mean now now that i kind of get what they're trying to do it, it's making more sense and i'm i'm hoping that issue four kind of lays it on even thicker yes <laughs> like butter i think i'm a mm, see i'm a little bit harder on comic books a lot of it is pacing for me so one kind of missed the mark for me but two help to kind of get it back on rhythm like oh, okay you know it's it's the it's the classic stumbling block that a lot of new titles tend to run into is like trying to get those first couple of books to get the pacing down and you know really help a person kind of figure out where they're going and just you know when two came out i'm like oh, okay this seems to have better footing i know where they're going with this 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 could get good this could get good okay i'm i'm open to it and then just three really miss the mark on a lot of levels for me, unfortunately. I also think that it's, I don't know if it's like a negative, but it's very early in like the series and we're already switching our... Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not a big fan of, of the inconsistencies, you know? Mm -hmm. and in the, the art's good and the colors are great, but it doesn't like flow from issues one and two and, into this one. Yeah, there's there's a they, there seems to be like a major disconnect and yeah, quite often like art helps to sell a story or explain kind of like what the setting is supposed to feel like and the constant changing of how the art flows like like you said the colors are brilliant the art in and of itself you know works as art but trying to keep some sort of consistency going it's not so it kind of cha keeps changing the feel of the story which is i think unfortunately lending to the to the imbalance as it were i, I think that my problem with the art is i was looking at it as like a purely superhero book right so mm -hmm. This, now that I'm seeing that it's really not a superhero book at all, the, nope. the stylized art is, is working for me. Now that, like, it's, it's it's really funny how sometimes one person can just say one thing, like, like that whole, like, reference of, like, an old school type of, like, advertising agent kind of thing mm -hmm. really kind of, like, brought it into perspective to me. With the art, I kind that's, like, why when when you said that, I was like, oh, my God, it's, it's Mad Men. Because, like, the art is really setting it up for a very retro sort of vibe to it, the colors, too. It's very, very old school, very stylized. So I like it for what it is, for what I thought the book was going to be. 
I did not. Yeah. No, I hear what you say. I, I just wish that they had gone a little bit deeper into the like 1960s kind of feel. Fair. So yeah, like if they had really, it, and I don't mean it to sound negative. I'm, this is quite just, it's just a critique for me. If they would go just that one step further, it would help solidify the book's feel, but they keep, it keeps seems to be like half a step off and that's not helping. <laughs> well, I think a big part of that too is that it started right as we were getting ready for an event. So it wasn't really able to cement itself prior to that event. So it's it's kind of getting back up to speed now that the event is done. That's that's mm. fair because it really did like Having your second issue be pigeonholed into an event is, is not going to help you set the narrative that you're trying to set, right? It's going to mm -hmm. throw you overall. Like, it was cool how they introduced the Fenris element in that second issue, and I liked the whole, like, it was a lot of office political intrigue of the second issue, and, and mm -hmm. that continued in this third issue. I just am kind of like, huh, what's going on here with this? One thing that did kind of strike me is sort of the return of Jamie Madrox to more of like who he originally was as a character. When he was introduced, he was introduced in Giant Size Fantastic Four. Number four, I have this issue right here. I'm looking at it. He was introduced and he was in science. He, when he, after that issue was over, he went to live and work on Muir Island with Moira Taggart. So a lot of his early publication history, he was heavily involved in scientific pursuit he's done a lot of that and x-factor brought a that paul the the pad x-factor era brought a sort of a different conceptualization of the character where he was more goofy more you know like ha 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 look at me i'm not really super the super smart science guy but i, mm -hmm. I do like the bringing back to the core of his original character do were any of you guys surprised to see jamie madrox in this really high-tech sciencey role so actually that was my favorite part of the issue was seeing Madrox in action um, and I like how, how the dupes work around the lab and, and how they share knowledge and for me that, that was the best part like if, if we could have had the whole issue centered on Madrox I think it would have worked a lot better yes like yes. We, we should have seen it, it felt like we saw snippets of what Madrox is doing and mm -hmm. and I I'm for me I'm more interested in, in that the in like the board things mm -hmm. so yeah no i agree the the i mean the the political intrigue is is somewhat exciting like i kind of like trying to figure out what you know what monet is gonna do and what's gonna happen out of it but the the really fascinating stuff was the madrox parts too well, that's the problem, though. The political intrigue isn't all that intriguing, per se. But, like, it's because you haven't really gotten to understand these characters and what their role is in this corporation. Like, the person I honestly know the most about as it fits into this title is Madrox. And I, I like the way he's been fleshed out. But they made him a raging douchebag. And, like, I totally, I, like, I know, I know that he is. I know yep. that he is a douchebag on a lot of levels. But, like, the fact that Layla calls and goes, hey, I think, 
our kid is like gonna, you know, take a take a couple of steps at any point. Oh yeah, yeah, just set him on the couch, turn on some cartoons. He'll sit still. Like, excuse me, you want me to put our kid on the couch with some cartoons so that they don't walk? Like, what the f- is wrong with you? Like, I can understand why she was irritated. And I'm like, bitch, you're multiple man. Why didn't you send one of yourselves to no. your house so that they could be with the wife and kids and do that while you have all these other dupes you know doing science and every now and again you reabsorb the one that got to stay at home so you don't feel like you've missed out on your family being a family that is a very good question (laughs) i'm just saying i'm just i'm I'm like if they can answer it you know (laughs) you brought her up so my least favorite part was seeing Layla miller just because you know it's Layla Miller. Exactly. I'm like, yeah, nobody enjoys her. <laughs> hey, hey, wait. You know, I enjoy. Wait, did I? No, wait. Showed up in Rosenberg's Uncanny, and I didn't hate her, but like, I think they were at a funeral. So <laughs> it's pretty hard to hate anybody at a funeral, <laughs> know, right? And, and and Danny was like talking with a Chan. I forget. Oh my god, I really should know that because those are my two favorite characters. But like, I think it was Shan. She was talking about all the people that died, and like, I was like, oh, Layla looks so sad, and she's standing right next to Longshot of all people. But anyway, yeah, you know, Layla is Layla is kind of annoying, but, you know, I also thought that she would have realized, hey, like, it, it feels like he didn't even talk to her that this was, like, the launch day, and, like, she's just like, you're not paying attention to me, and, like, it just felt really more whiny than usual for her. I'm sorry, but as a woman, what she said was abso-fucking-lutely on point. Like, hey, multiple man, uh, I know that you're busy and shit, but I haven't seen you in a while, and our kid hasn't seen you in a while, and, like, you think somebody could come home and maybe spend a few minutes with our fucking family? Like, yeah. she could have been way more whiny. She could have been way more aggressive about it. But, like, your kid is about to take steps, and you're like, oh, I'm in the lab. Can't you see I'm doing something important? Bitch, you made a baby. <laughs> fucking go, like, send one of your people home so you can deal with a fucking kid that you are supposedly helping to raise. Because, goddammit, you're a parent too, asshole. I'm sorry, Ugh. but that part gets me hot anytime somebody's like, he's doing something important. Like, there's not women out there who are doing important shit. No, you're right. Shit, you're right? right. I didn't mean to minimize. did not mean to minimize. It's a valid point that she wants somebody to, like, come home once in a while to be with the family. Wait, why doesn't he just a have young a, child. Why doesn't he just have a Manny Madrox go right. and stay there? Exactly. And that is, that is my exact point. He was more put out by her asking to have somebody, like, come home. Maybe he could come home. Instead of going, okay, I'll send somebody right away, dear. Thank you. And just click hang up. That would have made such a shorter conversation. Hell, he didn't even have to say, hey, by the way, I'm sending home one of my dupes. Send home the dupe. The dupe has all the knowledge you do, dumbass. Like, <laughs> no, what, like why they, she, nobody can tell the difference unless you tell them. Like, what the fuck? No, why isn't there a dupe stationed permanently at home? That, yeah, that right. everything. Right. Yeah. I'm like, he he was doing so much better. He was trying actively not to be the asshole, and they just made him the asshole. And I'm like, oh, that undid like years worth of work on trying to make this a slightly more likable character. Well played. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> oh, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Oh God. Oh yeah, yeah. 
I really can't add much more to that. Um, yeah, he is totally a jerk, and he deserves all of all of what <laughs> all of that. I'm like, oh, that sounded really aggressive, actually. No, that Speaking was perfect. Of <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm just like, what? Like, there are simple solutions to these quote-unquote overly complicated problems, especially when your frickin' power is to be able to self-replicate. Yeah, yeah, he should, like, why does, why does, I yeah, know you guys are right, why does Layla have to stay at home with the kid? Like, unless she wants to, and like, if, she, yeah. if that's what she wants to do, good for her. But, like, why does it matter? Like, yeah, he should have, like John said, I think you said, right, he should have a stoop stationed there at all times. Like, and then that way that way not only do you get to do like months and years worth of research in a week you also don't miss out on family time and developing an actual friggin relationship with your family and with your child so that in case you get murdered i can see why somebody would be upset why you're dead <coughs> want to maximoff <coughs> <laughs> 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 the witch, the witch, the witch is dead. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, what? Oh. Somebody dropped the house on her? You don't say. <laughs> I think we should move on. move <laughs> on. <laughs> Stage words of wisdom, all right? Um, so, they are at, like, TED Talk conference? I don't know what they're at. They're at some, like, business conference, right? I so, think so, yeah. One thing that kind of struck me as very almost cringy was the need to have Monet go to a, to force Monet to go to the Women in Leadership Conference when she just wanted to go to the regular leadership conference with Warren. Mm. Mm. And and obviously she makes her points on the issue. <laughs> but puns, puns intended. But it really does sort of reconceptualize the throwback vibe to this and not that mm. not that it doesn't happen all the fucking time still in the real corporate world where where you know men go to the leadership conferences and women go mm. to no, especially in the tech in the tech industry yeah yeah mm-hmm. um well you know what are our general thoughts around that because mine are like i uh, what is this but you know I mean, I think Thierry is just trying to comment on how generally when we think of tech companies in the real world, we think of men. Mm-hmm. And I'm struggling to think of, okay, there's one, but it's like a really bad case because it's, it's like the biggest scam ever, mm-hmm. which was run by a woman. And and that's I think that's just Tini commenting on how on this huge industry, we, you think of Steve Jobs, you think of Elon Musk, you don't think of Amy, whoever, you know? And, and that's a problem in, in the industry. And I think that's that. I mean, I, I can accept Monet being sidelined for that if, if that's the case. Mm, oh, to make I a can. good commentary on it? Yeah, no, I, I I do. And I know my mom was like director of IT security for a firm. And mm-hmm. she used to talk about how, yeah, they would like, they would send you to the women's group because, you know, like you were a woman in IT. And that was like, oh my God, like women can't do that kind of thing. Like, like that's what the guys were thinking, you know? Like, mm-hmm. But it, it's, I, I do like the commentary on it, and it, you know, it does need to be said, and it, and it really caused me to think about the issue more than I give the thought to normally. 
I, I have many thoughts, but I'm going to wait for another person to talk and then I'll get <laughs> into it. So this, this kind of put me on the edge. At first it was because Warren kind of tricked Monet into going, but when I reread it, it wasn't just Monet that he tricked into going, it was Sophia and Trinary as well. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. that just none of them actually wanted to be there, but he was the one that convinced all of them to go because Trinary and Sophia thought that Monet was going to be there, and he made her under- believe that she-, she was going to be there to support them. And uh, I, 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 it's very not good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know how, but like Heaney managed to make Warren even more unlikable for me through this. I don't know how that's even possible, but well, he's the playboy figurehead, and they have they have played that particular trope to the absolute nth. Like he is literally there as the face of the company. Everybody just goes ahead and follows his orders because he's the blue-eyed cis white male with the cute feathery wings flitting I mean, those, about. Those wings like, are kind of hot, though. I mean, I mean, I'm not totally going to deny that, but it's like <laughs> it's it's. God, what is the term for it? It's not Deus Ex Machina. He represents something more, something almost angelic. So, of course, everybody just kowtows to him and follows his lead um, as just, you know, oh, yeah, you're you're the guy with the money. Okay, yeah, we'll totally do whatever you say. When it comes to his own uh, people, you know, the mutants of Kokoa, Monet, you know, the corporation, everything, he tricks them into doing shit, which is just really underhanded. And this Krakoa and, and where mutants are currently, it shouldn't be about trying to trick your your fellow mutant or co-worker into doing something. This would have been a great place to do the exact opposite. Like, you know, have an idiot human or politician go, <laughs> aren't you ladies supposed to be at that little, you know, tea party gathering over there? And just have all of them look at him like, uh, no, I'm here for this conference. We're doing this thing. And if you don't like it, too bad. Kriko is moving forward. You should hurry up and follow or else you're going to get left behind. But instead, they use Monet again and again and again as a very cold, angry, aggressive, violent woman of color, as if that fucking trope has not been a major issue with people of color and especially black women. Yeah. <laughs> now, kind of on in that same vein. So as as I'm reading it, and now that I'm thinking I'm getting Teeny's viewpoint in, in writing this book a little bit more, she she wanted to write this, like, fantastical, like, you know, like, political thing, like, corporate drama, you know, set way back in time. But you have two women of color of different cultures. Mm-hmm. And all three of the women, to me read like they all come from the same culture mm-hmm. so raven is that when you're reading it is that is that as bothersome to you as it is to me when you're reading their dialogue yes oh my god yes yes it is because it feels like there's no differentiating between the character or i should say the characters sorry my bad 
Um, it, the character, it, the white it, character. Exactly, because well, it, it feels like it's all coming from the exact same place and doesn't really feel like it's taking into account that they are separate entities, separate characters, separate people who would have more than likely very different backgrounds when it comes to being how they were raised, how they were socialized. And yeah, it. I'm like, it was uh, bothersome. And like, I think, I think you, oh my God. Yeah. You saying that is like, oh my God, that's why that's, that's why I'm having this issue is that they all seem very, very similar to each other but they're supposed to be such very, very different characters. So like, even when they're put up against, oh God, the little white supremacist corporate. Uh, oh, what is her Stepford, name? Stepford wife. Because it's um, St. Pierre and I keep calling her Coco St. Pierre just because it just sounds like the perfect name for her. But like, it, <laughs> it really does. <laughs> but yeah, like her, like ha- having to have women of color deal with racist shit bags who are trying to, gaslight you about the racist pieces of shit that they are working with <clears throat> Fenris. Yeah, like like what why are you forcing them to work with her and why do they all like why do all the characters sound the same? Uh, um, can I add something to that? Yeah, Absolutely. Just, sort of, just not from Xcorp mm. because I mean as you can listen I'm I'm not like a native English speaker. Mm. And when I was reading um, Way of X, mm-hmm. I noticed that that uh, Fabian Cortez was not really speaking like a Spanish-born person who mm-hmm, learned mm-hmm. English. And I'm noticing that more in other books, which mm-hmm. is, I think it's more like a, I mean, how, like say Sofia's from Venezuela, right? Mm-hmm. But she yeah. doesn't speak like a Latina woman speaking English. I, I don't know how to sp- explain it. Oh no, I know exactly and, what you mean. Like there's there's missing nuance. And oh I my think god, that, yeah. Because we're translating realize. as we talk, you know? Mm-hmm. So, oh yeah. Uh, and sometimes when we speak it's not as perfectly natural as the book, books make it out to be. And it's just not a mm-hmm. problem here with X Warp. I think it's more a problem with the medium being so English centric. I, I I agree with you and and the only thing I would add to that is I have I have a feeling that not enough research is really being done which I find to be a disservice because comic books are global and Krakoa specifically is supposed to be very global you know about all these different mutants from different places and yet there's so much nuance missing like I know certain phrases in English do not make sense in other languages and and the same thing vice versa. So I'm like, I'm missing that little bit of pause or those little nuances that you would notice, you know, talking to somebody who's from a different part of the world or from a different culture. So it's like, I'm not getting, I'm, I'm looking for the flavor of like Popeyes, and instead I'm getting discount KFC kind of thing going on. You're getting Lee's chicken. You're getting Lee's chicken. Exactly. There's no herbs and spices here. (laughs) Like I'm, there's no, there's not, there's a lot of missing flavor and it's, yeah, you're right. It's not just this book. It's, it's more books overall. Yes. We're getting more representation of color, which is great. And we're getting more representation of queerness, which is great, but there's a lot of nuance that requires, research and talking to people from those areas or from those cultures that you're trying to represent in order to represent them correctly. I've I've heard the representation 
outside of the U.S. issues a, a lot, especially with this book. When you look at issue one, they drew, I think it was uh, Rio de Janeiro. Like, they drew, like, Nova Roma being, like, right outside of Rio de Janeiro, like, which would not have happened. You would not have been able to see that earthquake or whatever it was, the, the big thing shooting up to the sky from Rio de Janeiro. I think it was Rio. But, uh, yeah, no, it's 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 definitely something that we, we need more of, and it's why books like, it's why having people like Kalinda Vasquez on America Chavez made in America and Terry Blass on reptile. It's why that's mm -hmm. so important because oh those books seem a lot more authentic and mm -hmm. just, just talking as a, as a basic white person myself, we sometimes need to be spoon fed things <laughs> and we, we need people to put it in a, you know, like to kind of say point A, point B, point C. This is how people from other cultures talk because mm -hmm. we don't, I don't want to say we don't care, but we don't always have the ability to notice that. Mm -hmm. no, that what you said made absolute sense. <laughs> I mean, it's it's spot on. You're not wrong. You're not yeah. wrong at all. Yeah. Is, is it possible that this dilution of culture is kind of a shortcut that they're using just forcing Kirk, the Krakoan language on everybody. But they're not forcing the Krakoan language on everybody. They are forcing European slash colonizer type language okay. on all of us. There doesn't seem to <laughs> there doesn't seem to be a lot of nuance. If it was about Krakoa, I would expect more keywords or or phrases That's true. or okay. that kind of stuff. And it said it just sounds very it's just European. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. straight up yeah. boop, white. Here's here it is. And I'm like yeah. But wait, isn't somebody from like South America and isn't this person from like Japan and isn't this person from like, like there, you have so many mutants that we all know and love from around the world and they all speak exactly the same on a lot of levels. And I'm like, hmm. But what Kyle said, like you could sort of head canon it like they're not speaking English, they're speaking Krakoan. So that's why they're perfectly fluent because they have it in telepathically in installed, you know, when, that, when they are- That would make a lot Krakow. of sense actually. So if you take it like, like say when you read a fantasy or a sci-fi book, mm -hmm. you're sort of translating that world's language into English, let's say. Mm -hmm. So you could sort of explain it that within like mutants, they're just speaking Krakoan, but they speak to other characters who don't speak Rico in, in English or other languages, and they all sound the same. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it it shouldn't you be an excuse. You sort of fix it, but yeah. it's not it's not really fixed. You know. Yeah. It's like in Star Trek, right? They have the universal translator that makes everybody mm -hmm. sound like they're speaking in American English instead of yeah. or 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 Picard's French accent, which is an English <laughs> accent, but. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, even there, like when we look at the Star Trek universe, each of the different races and cultures that they represent, even when they're alien, or especially when they're alien, you can still still see that there are some certain nuances to how they speak or how they reference things based on their culture. Like if you've ever watched Worf talk for any amount of time, you could see that the way he speaks and approaches things comes from a very warlike civilization that has just more recently learned to talk before hitting something. I mean, not to get sidetracked, but why is he the most depressed Klingon ever? Like, he's the saddest Klingon ever. Like, Klingons are like, we're gonna drink and have some fun. And he's like, no fun. Fun sucks. 
Let's let's well, let's destroy he, Ryza. That's a fun planet. I'm sorry. He comes from a dishonored house, I believe, or a house that has a lot of problems with it. So he, unfortunately, because he lives in a very human society, and they his his home world sees him as being less than or weak. He tends to have to kind of ramp it up to the you know extra level, just short of being full you know rage berserker, just yeah. to garner any sort of respect from his own people so i can see where that would kind of wear on him because he's walking that very fine line between warrior culture of the klingons and the very peaceful culture at least the supposedly peaceful culture of the federation and, and he so, was adopted yeah. by humans and he was raised by humans so exactly like, so yeah like, he, it's like, he, it's, like white the, people, it's like white people teaching somebody how to be like a different like you're like this mm-hmm. is your culture <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah it, it, it it's almost like and don't take it too far but it's almost like a, a group of like you know a, a white mother and father trying to teach black and african culture to their adopted black child and while they might be able to teach them a lot of things it doesn't mean that that black culture is going to necessarily accept that child because there are certain nuances that are missing Mm -hmm. and that can really that can hurt as a kid because you're like well why don't i fit in with you i look like you and like i've been taught some of the culture and they're like oh no 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 you sound like a white person regurgitating our culture back to us so i can i can understand not fitting in but i mean this yep. goes right back to what we were talking about with export Absolutely. you need the nuance because that fills out a character and makes them so much more interesting to deal with and when you're missing that nuance it comes out really flat unfortunately absolutely now- so what you're right. saying is that Baron Simo does not know more about black culture than Winter the Falcon, right? <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> don't, don't even get me started on that one. We'll be here all day. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. That was great. I loved it. Um. Okay, so something I, I want to talk about. Yes! <laughs> like, just, a, just about the issue is when Monet is... Before she's poisoned, which really doesn't make any sense, but whatever. Um, the the other white lady whose name I forgot. Oh, yeah, the Stepford wife. Uh, Coco yeah. St. Pierre. Whatever her first name is, I always forget her first name. Um, <laughs> just so, just call her Coco Chanel, because it's so fitting, especially if you know about Coco yeah. Chanel. So, yeah, she's defending um, Fenris as consultants. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like the larger point of the book is that when you're moving in like the corporate in uh, worlds and corporate circles, mm-hmm. in the end, you you don't defend ideals and you don't defend principles. You just defend the bottom line, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of the point of, of this conversation is that well, I don't I don't give a shit that we're working with Nazis. We're we're making a lot more, more money with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's very interesting. Because, well, of course, I'm not American, but, mm-hmm. I mean, we saw what, what's happened there in the past four or five years. Mm-hmm. And and you see this sort of ultra-right-wing people coming out of the woodwork, mm-hmm. which, of course, wouldn't have happened before 2016. <laughs> and it's very interesting oh, yeah, to really. see that reflected in, in a comic book, you know? Yeah. I, it's, it's such a real part. Sarah St. John is her name. Oh, my God. Sarah St. John. <laughs> okay. Coco St. Pierre wow. is from America. It's <laughs> <laughs> from American Horror Story. Like, wow. She's from American Horror Story. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's where I got the name. But Sarah St. John is that, that 
what you just brought up, John, is is so American. So oh, people wow. will people will say like, "Oh, I'm all for gay rights," and then they will say like, "Oh, but I love that chicken sandwich and that lemonade from fucking Chick Fil A," <laughs> and the place will have lines around the block. Mm-hmm. So that hypocrisy is on. Unfortunately, such a part of our culture that mm-hmm. I do love it being like laid out on paper like that. But also at the same time, I'm so tired of seeing it in real life that I'm kind of like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, and the, the funny slash not so great thing is that America actually has an exceedingly long history with working with Nazis, employing Nazis and excusing Nazis. And I do not mean in this modern era. I mean, starting in World War II, a lot of the scientists who worked yeah, for the Nazi regime, pen. yep, boys yep. from Brazil, like Joseph Mengele, yep. but a shit ton of them, they either you know went to the far corners of the world to escape, or a lot of them were actually hired by the American government or large corporations within America. So yeah, we, we, we employed a shit ton of Nazis because, oh, they're scientists and they have things that we need science-wise. And so yeah, made excuses as to why it was totally okay to employ these people who had figured out how to make horrific instruments of mass destruction and torture. Like Fanta, but... What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God! Oh God! No, fa- like Fanta is actually like was was a was a Nazi Germany drink, but yeah, oh. it was it was yeah, it was made by it was made by yeah, you thank you. <laughs> I was like mm. it was Nazi Coca Cola, but like yeah, that's that's where that comes from. But oh, uh, <laughs> yep, that'd be a great example right there. Oh. Uh, but we, yeah, we do like to think a lot of people went to go in hiding, and where do we like to say they went? Like Argentina is like where oh, we yeah. like to say they all mm-hmm. went to hiding. Oh, yeah. but, Brazil. Oh yeah, they just went yeah. to you know Brazil and Argentina. You know, way over there. As yeah. It were. No, no. No. Unfortunately, like you said, Raven, too many of them got pardoned for their war crimes and mm-hmm. uh, allowed to not only live in the U.S., but thrive and, like, you know, mm-hmm. live out the full American dream. Yep. Some of them are still alive today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, again, this it's it's like this particular comic book is bringing to light so many of those issues. But instead of making heroes of these corporate types, you know, Warren and Monet and Trianary and, you know, everybody's working with the corporation. Instead of actually making them at least somewhat likable good guys by having them use those dirty underhanded tricks to actually cut the legs out from, you know, the horrible human corporations that are trying to friggin murder them instead they're just they're playing the exact same game with the exact same goals which makes them just as shitty as the people they're playing against as it were yeah i think that's that might be one of the things that's bothering me i'm having trouble sympathizing with or empathizing with any of the characters because they're all kind of really dickish (laughs) yeah that they are that they are all right oh 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 Real quick, we have yet another instance of a mutant circuit. Yes! Oh, yeah! Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes! Run, that was I'm sorry, so no, cool you're right, see. that was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was the mutant solar circuit, so. 
they were like, it's a solar system circuit. I did think it was cool, but also questionable to have Sunspot come in to do the circuit, but mm-hmm. not like have him like, hey, you want your board position that we should owe you because it's your company, but you know, whatever. Anyway. Yeah, that um, was that was that was uh, questionable. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, they had Neil Sha'ara there as well. Yeah. Yes. Vulcan, Bishop, Neil Sha'ara, and Sunspot. I like how they're calling him Neil Shara now and not Thunderbird, but they're not bringing Thunderbird back. So. Right? Oh my god. Right? <laughs> right. Thank you, Memorial Garden and X-Men 1. It's basically like, <laughs> no, <laughs> Thunderbird's not coming back. That's They just fucking said it to us. So Yeah, so let's talk about the part that's not written by Teeny, which is the part at the end. Oh, the Madrox story. That was kind of cute, actually. Fantastic. I loved it. Yeah. And I, yeah. I love comics that make you, you know, work with the format. Mm-hmm. And so you had to read. You couldn't read this, like, left to right, like always. You had to go following the lines. And then, oh, they intersect. So you had to go back and read the other line. And I, yes. I thought that worked brilliantly. And it's something that you really only can see in comics mm-hmm. because you, could, you have the whole picture at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of fun reading the Madroxes, you know, on a secret mission, but being goofy. And yeah, it was really cool. I really liked it. I, I absolutely loved it because honestly, this is how multiple man should work. And this yeah. is how he's most interesting is when he's, you know, multiplying, doing secret missions, you know, like sneaking into places and and being his fun self. And like, yeah, you get to see all these different things and technically they're from the same viewpoint because he's technically the same person, but, you know, spread out across all these different things and you're going, oh my God. And yeah, having to like, I loved it so much because you had to keep rotating back to like kind of put the story in order so that you could have like the montage going in your head, almost like an action sequence when you have like, okay, so here's our driver and you know, here's our person who's going to steal the thing. And then they're going to run across the, the rooftops and they're going to jump off and there's our driver and da, da, da. I love that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, that, that multiple sabotage was brilliant. And, yeah, and just multiple sabotage was written by Jason Liu in letters by Clayton Cowles. So yeah. that Jason was Liu really the cool. art too. It just says bye, so I, I think it's... I'm assuming uh, he did everything but yeah. letters. Yep. I really liked that they... It's it's such a small detail, but they stylized the reading lines... Yes! As, yes. as his, his little logo. Yeah. yeah. That was so good. Oh, my God. I read this. I, I read this digitally because, like, I just put my code in and I like yeah. read them digitally now. So I was mm-hmm. like, "Wait, are they skipping panels?" I was like, "What's going on?" And I was like, "Oh, the story just reads like that." Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. It was really cool though, and it was really cute, and I liked bringing in Roxton. Mm-hmm. Go away, who? I would read this book. You know, I would read a book like this, oh, twenty-four yeah. pages every month, mm-hmm. and. I think this would be something that, that would be really cool if, if we did like in a giant size Krakoa thing. Oh my God, yes. We had like two page stories for different mutants who haven't had the spotlight mm-hmm. and yes. with, with, you know, all sorts of creators. And I think that would sell stupidly well. But oh yeah. my God. Yes. <laughs> yes. Make, so make, make it 48 pages. I will so pay the full $10 for it and not have a single complaint. Like, yeah. <laughs> Marvel, pick this idea up. We need to have this because yeah. that would that would be a great introduction 
to a lot of characters that we don't necessarily get to play with very often or see very often. And it'd be a great way to, you know, show off their power, kind of give you a bit of background on who they are, their personality and all that kind of good stuff. And honestly, even for just being two pages, there is so much crammed in there in such a well done way that I could I could just eat it forever. Just like, oh my God, yes, this is what I wanted. This is Oh, love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. Favorite part. Yeah, I'm, and now I'm still going back and flipping through these pages, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, so if this is Mad Men, who's Christina Hendricks in this? <laughs> mm. <laughs> which I, which I'm like, is it Monet or is it Wallflower or Trinary is totally Elizabeth Moss's character. I forget her name, but yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah. yeah, I, mm, yeah. Trying to put some of these characters into, hey, where do you fit in the in the XYZ world? It almost feels like they're they're like a, a competing corporation next to Mad Men, but you know. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, it's like. Ugh. Hey, if I can look for Golden Girl references and everything, I can look for Mad Men references. <laughs> <in there. laughs> true right. enough. True enough. She's definitely a <laughs> Sophia. Like what? <laughs> Wait no no Monet Monet is totally Dorothy in this book okay oh. so like picture it Sicily nineteen twelve <laughs> no no I, I I get what you mean but yeah 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 oh gravy I'm kind of looking forward to the next issue because according yeah. to the coming uh, the coming soon page there's going to be a sullen mastermind and he's adorable. <laughs> <gasps> oh, if he wasn't sullen, I'd be like, "Is that you, Kyle?" Because like adorable, Wait, but like, who's the sullen mastermind that's adorable? Oh, I need to know that now. <laughs> With his cute, goofy, poofy hair, like, how do you get it to stand up like that? <laughs> but that's it. Oh, yeah, I see what you're talking about right there at the end of it. Like, oh my god, mm -hmm. I thought you were just talking about somebody being adorable, and I was like, "That's Kyle." Like, no. Really? no. Like, <laughs> But like I wasn't uh, trying to call you. It's me. It's obviously me. <laughs> I w I wasn't trying to call you mastermind or anything. <laughs> That's an insult. I'm not sure. Yeah. I was like, oh no. I was like, no. Now that we've been able to reconceptualize this conversation a little bit in the mm -hmm. the story, and maybe and you know what? Maybe that's not what Tini was going for. But I'm going with the Mad Men X Men type thing. As as long as I've got that in mind, I might I might be able to reread it and get more enjoyment out of it because it's not not what I was expecting, and I just I want Warren to Hulk out instead of Monet for once too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hear you. Cool. I definitely hear you on that. Didn't um, he though? Didn't he? He did in issue one. I thought it was in two. Was it two? Okay. Yeah, because Mastermind had him had him his Archangel persona hidden at the party. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. Okay. All right. Good. Yeah. It is, as long as it's not always Monet who's turning into her penance form, which is beautiful and amazing, and never been like never been explained at all for any reason, but like. I, yeah, you're, you're right, Raven. It is bad that she's always the one who's doing it. Yeah. Well, and she is the one who most often has violence then leveled against her, um, mm -hmm. which, uh, yeah, she almost went straight up penance because of the reflector. Um, she was then called dangerous and unstable by the um, Coco St. Pierre, <laughs> St. Laurent, whatever you want to call her. Like, she... 
she's like, oh my god, you're right. This this mutant is so dangerous. This woman is so dangerous. And it's like, oh, oh, okay, so we've got a dangerous black woman. Oh, that's fucking surprising right there. And then she poisons her or injects her with something that causes her to go bat shit and straight up through a ceiling. So, yeah. So, again, I don't, that's what I don't get is why Sarah St. John's company would be, mark like, making a mutant cure when back in the 80s, and I know in Marvel time it was in the 80s, but, like, <laughs> Forge created a gun that, like, it made mutants go away. You go bye-bye. Like, look at what he did to Storm, and the government has it. So, like, you think they would be able to recreate that. Mm-hmm. And they've got the collars, so like I just it just it just seems I don't know. Weird. Maybe they watched X Men three and went, oh yeah, that probably won't work so well, and tried a different route. <laughs> Who knows? I can't imagine anybody getting any good ideas out of X Men three. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now in this next segment, the team comes together to analyze Moon Knight number one. Moon Knight is such an interesting character, having been sort of restarted so many times over the last 20 years. With this next run poised to set up the exciting Disney Plus series, it looks like this is a great time to jump onto the character, and so that's why X's for Podcast did. We hope you guys enjoy, and don't forget, if you did, you can give us a subscribe over on Twitter and Patreon at X's for Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next segment of X's for Podcast. I am Rod. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey, guys, I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Drewsifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. Hey, it's Nathan. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at DazzlerAOA. And I'm John. You can find me at LostingForCo on Twitter, and glad to be here. Moon Knight woo, has a new series. The writer is Jed McKay. The artist is Alessandro Capuccio. The color artist is colorist is Rochelle Rosenberg. I love Moon Knight. I haven't read much of his comics, but I also love Jed McKay's writing. So I was like, I have to pick up this book either way. And plus, there's getting a Moon Knight series, so I'm sure we're preparing for that as well. Disney Plus, yay, yay, yay. <laughs> but first i want to say what is everyone's experience with moon knight before we even go into this like amazing first issue i'm a moon knight guy i'm sort of a moon nightingale if you will <laughs> i'm kind of like a moon midnighter i really enjoy the visualization of the character and when you really go back and you kind of trace the origin of this fantastical visualization you realize that pretty early on he was just a fantastical visualization which is unfortunate as shit but over time writer after writer kind of came in and said he's too fucking cool looking not to love so there's sort of a general sentiment that even though moon knight frequently is kind of historically was bogged down by a lot of kind of middling a character that didn't have a real home outside of looking really cool on all of the 80s posters because it was the 80s and sinkevich was the shit so i think what we found is especially starting around uh, kind of the new Avengers era, so like 2005-ish, people started to maybe pay attention to this very sellable visual, and they started to pump a little bit more energy into him. So even though I had read a bunch of Moon Knight growing up, because I was like, oh, this looks like the new Mutants art. Why isn't he ever joining the new... Why, he's never showing, why has he never shown up in the new Mutants? What the fuck is happening? <laughs> so I read a bunch of Moon Knight for no reason, and then a bunch of Moon Knight for a good reason, because I was interested in seeing the character expand, and I feel like... There were a number of runs in the last few years. I'd like to point out the Lemire run for being spectacular as well. 
there have been a number of runs that it's kind of interesting because we're not really pushing the works by those writers right now. And it's going to be interesting to see how Marvel definitely handles a number of creators that they're currently not really putting emphasis behind, having had several runs in a row. <laughs> it's going to be really interesting. But, you know, I love the character and I'm here for more. Awesome. I, I like that. This is a very good intro for you, Nico. <laughs> what about you, Drew? What is your experience with Moon Knight? So I don't have too, too much experience with him. Like, I love the look. I've read the Jeff Lemire, only the first arc. But I feel like I have, like, a decent grasp on the character. Like, I know what he's about. And I know he has, like, D.I.D. and Khonshu and his Egyptian kind of connection. And I also fell in love with this character through the look and kind of what he represents as, like, a character with dissociative identity disorder, which adds, like, an interesting aspect to him instead of just making him, like, a bad man dressed in white and just to touch on that because drew i'm so glad you said something about his disassociative identity disorder you know and i feel like that's what aaron was exploring recently in the age of Konshu run like 35 through 37 of his avengers now not everybody is the biggest fan of it like i am but i just i really loved that arc because i thought it really did show what i thought was a very believable path to trying to take over the marvel universe Somebody just being like, well, I want all the trinkets! And like, that, 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 I'm sorry, but that shit fucking work because it always works for the good guys. And there's so many more bad guys. So, no, no, I loved it. I believed it. I bought it. I was here for it. Yes! And I do think that that's what Aaron was exploring in many ways. So, Drew, thank you for bringing up something that I was foolish not to mention. <laughs> I do agree that I did love it. That's one of the things I think you should probably have to read before you read this first issue, if you haven't. Just to, like, understand why he's not, like, you know... The lapdog of Khonshu. <laughs> yeah, the lapdog of Khonshu anymore. Like, he's, like, his own thing now. Like, he's made the religion his own and his, like... Like he always said in this, is his own purpose and everything. So you kind of get that from this first issue. But if you don't read the Avengers arc, I feel like you're kind of lost. You're like, well, why is he doing this? So for me, like, I didn't really have super lots of experience with Moon Knight. I had read the character in West Coast Avengers way back when, when he was being weird with Mockingbird and they went and killed the guy. And that was crazy. I would say I read a few issues of the, the last book. I really liked them. I probably picked them up not just because he like had a dazzler album and was talking about it but you know that's me and the age of Khonshu arc in Avengers was really the first thing that made me sort of sit up and take more notice of Moon Knight as a character being more than just a goofy kind of like odd oddball superhero who does weird things and you never can really tell and I love how this first issue here really was able to conceptualize the story as a whole and I was able to pick it up not having the greatest Moon Knight knowledge and understand what's going on i didn't read that avengers arc and i like i found that it was like fine to read like i got everything that was happening giving you a preview uh first encounter moon knight when i did like a whole read of civil war which was very stupid but i did that and and then i checked out that very famous run by the very uncool people but yeah which is really it's a really really good run anyway but Double sigh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And <sighs> absolutely fell in love with his design, the, the whole white suit, the whole I want them to see me coming thing, and and then got deeper and deeper. 
and of course my favorite run and like probably my top five ever Marvel books is the Jeff Lemire and Greg Smallwood run, so good. which I just reread last week for this episode. And yeah, it as far as I'm concerned, Moon Knight has not appeared in any Marvel comics until this week. <laughs> not a big fan of what Aaron did. Well, also the, there was a, a small run between the Lemire run and and Avengers, which was by Max Bemis. Bemis, I'm not sure. And the worst X Men guy, yeah, yeah, and which was whatever. So it was a bit of a surprise to see Moon Knight back again, like in cahoots with Konshu, because at the end of the Lemure run, he rejects Konshu completely. So you can sort of skip everything, which I did. I've just seen like pictures and posts and reviews, I have not read the issues of Avengers. So, yeah, you can see how Mark has like he still sort of understand his role as as the feast of Konshu, but not in Konshu's grace you know and yeah that's that's my experience with moon knight and yeah i think he has one of the coolest designs in comics and i like how he plays with like the did but most importantly the whole like intersection of different religions and faiths like he's jewish but he's like the messiah source of uh, an egyptian god and you know that egyptians and jewish people in the bible were not like friends and yeah i thought that was that's a very interesting character and yeah i'm very excited for for the disney plus show i think it's gonna be great speaking of the disney plus show the fact that oscar isaacs also played apocalypse this guy can't get away from kind of slightly awkwardly appropriative egyptian characters over in the marvel universe it's just sort of like thank goodness oscar isaacs is here to fix it because oscar isaacs just just wave your hand and make it better i think he will play the role well and i hope it takes like kind of a turn that this book is taking. Like obviously we have to get more of the intro because we nobody knows who Moon Knight is outside of comics, so they can't go this straight route where it's just like I'm the fist of you know Kanshu already. I feel like they're definitely gonna have to take more of a turn from the comics anyway because a lot of people are gonna compare him to Batman because even the way he like jumps down and gets villains, he's doing like the moon shape, which is you know kind of like the bat shape. I like the moon shape better, honestly. I'm gonna be I maybe I'm a little Marvel bias. But I feel like it, it fits better for the night because it's a moon. <laughs> and it just looks better and it looks cleaner. I don't know. But there really is something about the cleanness of the design. And that's something I think in many ways we've seen Batman lean into the opposite of, as we've seen Moon Knight lean further into. One of the things that Batman constantly does is he gets new, even clunkier armor. <laughs> and, you know, that makes him about as aerodynamic as a falling plane. So I don't understand why he does this, right? But Moon Knight over the years i feel like there was a hot minute where moon knight was like fucking pouch man and they've kind of said well hold on sleek designed smoothly looks good let's get back to the sleekness of design and the fact that he has this very business attire look that's something that i think is really important to the character as well and like you know i would love to know everybody's take on that if you have been familiar with it or if it was new to you this whole idea that and i I don't know a better way to put it but running the fucking night is his business and that is why moon knight sits in that suit so frequently he has that look of authority it creates a contextualization that he is a businessman it makes us understand that he's here to play a role which is also in line with his acting past right so i feel like in many ways there's sort of an iconoclastic value to every performative role that moon knight plays in his design role right and i think that that's one of the things that the better runs have played against the idea of the simpler his costume gets to the point 
point where it's fucking clothing with the hood, right? There really is a transformative element of he is not just Mark Spector, who is this superhero. He is an avatar for godhood, and that is who he is. And it's actually a really powerful but very subtle difference that somebody like a Batman can't achieve by also being Bruce Wayne, a guy who doesn't frequently live in a cowl. So I I have a question because I, I'm not sure of it and it seemed like with the DID this is what it is but like when he's in the the more superhero costume he's always referred to as Moon Knight and when he's in the business attire which is fucking amazing oh my god like that really sleek white suit is oh my god but they always refer to him as Mr. Knight is that a different aspect of his personality as in the white business suit is he always going to be referred to as Mr. Knight because that's the way they seem to do it in this book that's from one of the previous runs I always understood it that Moon Knight and Mr. Knight are the same personality, just playing a role. Okay. Same. It kind of plays into the fact that they're both sides of an actor. Okay. Yeah. But say Stephen Grant, who is a movie producer, and Jake Lockley, who is a taxi driver, and Mark Spector, who who is a mercenary, those are all different personalities. And in the Lemire run, he had another personality where he was a space pilot as well. Yeah. So, See, I read the Lemire run, so that's why I was kind of like, or a lot of it. And that's why I'm like, oh, okay, this is different. Oh, that makes sense. It's all about his faith again, obviously. But he's like trying to put his faith into his own. Like he's becoming his own, you know, like savior at this point. Do we think he's going to get maybe another personality once his faith gets tested again? Like once his faith gets broken, even in himself, you think he'll maybe develop another personality to try to cope? I think the question becomes whether or not we take the interpretation of a disability as a plot device, as something that is attractive, right? If Marvel believes they can execute this with a deftness, they may go for it. I'm inclined to believe that we're more likely to see a solidifying of the personas and kind of perhaps a cleaning up of it so that it no longer is superhero identity disorder, superpower, super guy, and perhaps a little bit more of a linear take on it. I wouldn't hate if it was handled with a gentle delicacy, something where I I could trust the finest fine points not to be carelessly slopped on. Sure. But I do think that we are entering an age where you need to be very careful about the way you portray characters who historically have had mental disorder because we've so frequently misportrayed them that grounding them now becomes tricky. Yeah. That was always something about his character that worried me because I've, I've seen how poorly they've handled Aurora's DID. I think the, what they did with Legion to make it just an aspect of his power because it's wildly inconsistent with what real sufferers of DID have, I, I think it's, it's something that scares me for them to touch upon it too much because it does become a, a really bad and cheesy plot device when they do it wrong. I do like how they're like recently done Typhoid Mary's disorder. Like I, they They've kind of, you know, had her get a little bit of help in the Daredevil run and kind of just like find her place and like admit that she, you know, needs help. Jed McKay is good about writing more touchy, um, sensitive issues and like Black Cat and all those other um, stories he's written. So and I like that even in this first issue. We find out all about Moon Knight, not just with him talking to us, but because he's talking to a therapist. And I feel like that's a that's a good grounding step. You know, they even bring it up. She's like, I can help you with your disorder, but with that superhero thing and the God messing with your mind, that's the bigger issue. Like, we're not we're not making the biggest issue his disorder. We're doing it the superhero thing because that's actually more dangerous. And that's something you can't really treat. So I like I like how they aren't saying like, you know, the disorder is hindering you from life. No, like you can you're you can live with that. You 
you can work with it. It's, you know, it's an everyday thing because everyone has some type of disorder, but like that's not going to hinder you from life. And I basically, I think that's what they were basically saying. And I like that. They kind of put it in the background where it's not his whole thing. It's his disorder. You know, it's just a thing that he has, but that's not his whole prospect as a character. And it shouldn't just define him. One thing I I hope both this comic and, and the show does is not really leaning to the whole evil psychiatrist thing because not not because it's not interesting or not but it's maybe sort of boring because we've already had many stories about moon knight facing off with the evil hospital system or whatever so maybe not do that and and make the whole mental health issues i don't know i i hope they they don't do that and I really like how how Jed wrote the the psychiatrist here. Yeah, I definitely agree, John. I I love that. I mean, like, yeah, I don't want the I don't want the scary psychiatrist anymore because people already have worries enough to go into psychiatrists. Let's paint them in a good light. Whatever book we have, <laughs> like let's. That was one of the things I really love about what they're doing with this book. To actually, like, I, I've been a big proponent that like superheroes need to go to therapists and psychiatrists a lot more often because they're in really stressful situations and yes. there's a lot of issues that are coming up with it. And I know he already actually has a mental disorder, but I would love to see a lot more superheroes go to it because we really need to normalize it. And an evil psychiatrist is not going to help that. No. <laughs> I feel like it was a really good stand for them to be like, hey, the Avengers appointed this therapist to you. I'm like, that's really cool because you've never, we've never seen, or at least I don't think recently, never seen a, the Avengers appoint a therapist to someone that recently attacked them instead of just like, throwing them in like some kind of jail yeah, or something yeah. yeah like they're actually like hey you yeah, I don't need think help. there's counseling in the raft <laughs> <laughs> i don't think so <laughs> no and if there is it's fucking moonstone and we're all doomed but i really do appreciate that for a comic that kind of had to say to me look at the giant hammer i am going to bugs bunny style smash you in the head with the hammer so you know the character for a book that had to do that to me for a character i've read a trillion times this was actually a really painless kind of three or four page introduction more in line with the marvel now uh you know the marvel legacy primers i felt like this was a a pretty fast download like as a reader i did hit oh my god let me guess you're gonna tell me all about how, yep there's him dying got it got it and like i know that's par and parcel for a number one but for a guy who's tired of reading that every number one for moon knight who has had like batman levels of number ones you know just every couple of years they just have to whereas batman they just run 19 bat books this they just reboot 19 times every 10 years So, you know, for a guy who's really tired of reading that introduction of the character, this was pretty painless. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree agree as well. I like I'll say uh, Jen McCade writes good characters. And that's why I was excited for Moon Knight because, I mean, he reintroduced Black Cat to everyone and he didn't do it painfully because people know who Black Cat is. She's been around for years, but he introduced her not just as like. Spider-Man's kind of, you know, sidekick side chick situation is she was more than that. So much more than so much more. She's evolved so much more than that. And I feel like Moon Knight's evolved more than that too. I do like how in the beginning of this issue, and let me know what y'all thought about it, is we get the first like villains he's facing is vampires. And I feel like that sets the pace of like what he is really facing. Like he is the supernatural hunter, basically. Like well, anything at night, like muggers and all of that, like the basic things as well. But he's like i get the things that like you know crawl in the night and i'm I sorry like, hold on pause I'm so sorry. 
But please raise your hand if you have felt personally victimized by Marvel's overuse of vampires in the last five years. Me, 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 me. But I do. I love Reese, though. I love Reese. Oh, my God. Reese is amazing, no, and I want Reese to be everywhere. These are the best vampires, Nico. I, and I'll even give you that. But because like, so- they're, they're, they're basically multi-level marketing vampires. Uh, that was really funny. So, uh, the other day we realized why there are vampires in Wolverine when we're all kind of like, why are there vampires in Wolverine? Well, it's because what is Wolverine best at? Killing. And what can't he do anymore? Kill humans. Uh... So he can only face off against robots and vampires. That's mm. just about it. So I mean, he also if... has a little bit of a history with vampires too. In like the oh, that. absolutely. But even then, so like Storm does too. And like, we're not bogging Storm down in a solo title full of vampires. They better and, not. And you know, yeah. well, speaking Actually, of Aaron, yeah, they should, but in in other world, it, yeah, they should do it with like, space vampires and the other world no, vampires. The ones from from Tenosworge. Yeah. Oh, I want all of that. I want I want um, lots of vampires. I mean, not I make up your mind, Nico. I do feel like vampires really fit in this, though. Like for for like a Moon Knight, it's like oh yeah, duh. It's like vampires being in Blade, obviously. So I feel like it's, you know, it's street level, you know, he's trying to help his town because vampires are all street level, basically. And I feel like it's a really good intro who the character is and how he, you know, it's part of his, like, I guess, religion. Technically, they said in this book that he should kill, like, all the vampires and all the things that bump in the night. But then why Judeo-Christian Eastern European vampires? If we're dealing with a super cool Egyptian Jewish hybrid character, if we're dealing with a book that is trying to single handedly solve the crisis in the Middle East 22 pages at a time, (laughs) then why aren't we seeing some sort of Egyptian interpretation of a vampire? Well, I think that's because vampires are not really the focus villains of this series. Yeah. And we have two antagonists we have the the doctor, who's uh, the moon's. Hunter's Moon at the end, uh-huh. and we have uh, when when Mark and and Reese are drinking coffee together. There's someone watching him from a window. Mysterious man. Yeah. And <laughs> so I think the the vampires were just like set dressing, you know. Aside. You know what it kind of set it up as? Like, it, to me, it set his personality to be, like, it's a little throwaway thing. Yeah, we introduced Reese with it. But, like, it set his personality up to be kind of like Elsa Bloodstone, right? Where Elsa's out there, she's a monster hunter, but, like, if she sees something that you're not really a monster, she's not going to kill you kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I feel like, and we I have feel to like... think that Moon Knight was introduced in Werewolf by Night. So werewolves and Moon Knight, you know. Oh, okay. We, we, nice we know that he's gonna be connection. We know he's gonna be involved with supernatural creatures of all kinds. And that's just like the, the crew he hangs out with, like Blade and Ghost Rider, and the Spirits of Vengeance, and all that. Like, What's so funny is Blade and Ghost Rider are in Avengers now for so long that somehow I forgot that they used to be monster level characters. And you guys are so totally right. But I just like Mandala affected myself into this. Oh no, these guys are Avengers level. It's like I don't remember Luke Cage not being Avengers level. Yeah, no, Heroes for Hire. Please don't get me wrong. And I'm a huge Daredevil fan. So, like, you know, I grew up thinking Luke Cage was damn hot but like i could not once he became an avenger i'm like no luke cage is avengers level what the fuck are you talking about and like yeah you're totally right the horror vibe really 
yeah, it's a really nice touch back to the horror vibe. And I hadn't thought of it that way because I just didn't feel like it read like a horror book. And Moon Knight so frequently does read like a horror book. I feel like you have to have Moon Knight be a horror book because he he does things at night. You know, he's the, you know, the dark night. I hate to say it, but he's the the light night. He's the light night. He's a light bright. So <laughs> light, light, bright. I'm oh, sorry. You clap two times and he appears. Um, but I, on. <laughs> I do love that we get, you know, a random eight ball villain. Cause I didn't even know he still existed. <laughs> uh, and he's like, I just don't skin my face off. Did has, I, I'm not a connoisseur of Moon Knight, unfortunately. I need to be read more. But has he peeled someone's face off before? I mean, he gets pretty vengeancey of the night, shall be mine, chop, chop, kill, good, stab, bad. You know, he does very much get that sort of very you know angst it's angst he's uh, he's a white guy masquerading as an african hero and so he gets angsty you know and Konshu is not always the nicest guy Konshu sucks Konshu always sucks and even if hunter's moon is the bad guy of the arc there's still something else up Konshu's sleeve and i don't believe that for a moment there isn't so like yeah you know there really are enough villains running around this book that the vampire shouldn't have bugged me and i'm glad we all talked that out i feel like I feel whole now. I'm glad we were able to help Nico. This was all this was about Uh, to help Nico get through his his vampire um, disappointment. (laughs) But Reese is awesome, though. Don't kill Reese. No, Reese is awesome, and then the doctor is awesome. Like I'm glad, and I I don't know about the I don't know if the therapist is a person of color. I can't tell if she's white or not. But I'm glad that we are getting you know these different characters of color around Moon Knight, and it's not just nothing but white characters. Like I'm glad that they, (laughs) you know, they're acknowledging that you know. Not just white vampires exist. And you're getting this culture of different kind of people in this book. Because Moon Knight, I feel, obviously, he's a white dude, but he is, you know, kind of worldly since he is, you know, of the Egyptian god and all of this and all of that. So it's like, yeah, we need some, like, different kind of cultures in this book and not just a white guy trying to be, like, an Egyptian. So that, I feel like that's a good move. I'm going to say that he did cut someone's face off, but not in not as Moon Knight, but as Mark Spector, mercenary. Mm-hmm. Probably, oh. like see, in, in the past. That's why he said he was a bad man doing bad things. Because that's, yeah, I mean, that's not a nice thing. So, <laughs> no, so Mark, yeah, Rod, Mark was, I mean, from the Lemuran, he, he joined the army. And when he was discharged, he became a mercenary in, in Africa for, for a little bit. And then that's when he died and became Moon Knight. So I'm going to say he did very many awful things during that time that we haven't seen. Yeah. Speaking of things that aren't awful, but they have, they show him doing kind of, he doesn't do too much awful things, but I feel like Alessandro and Rochelle work spectacular for this book. And they are, I feel like they're made to draw Moon Knight. Cause I, I felt like I was just watching it like move off the page, the way they, the splash pages, the attention to detail, like the facial expressions were all on key. And I love that the shading on the, you know, people of color was correct as well. And I really appreciate that. I feel like you don't have, you don't have to get applause for that, but I do want to have that attention to detail. It was right. The shading was right. And I always want to put that in, up front that that is, I'm glad they got that right. But I, I was really impressed. We saw previews of this book and I already knew it was going to be beautiful. But while I was reading this, I just couldn't, I had to take a, like a second just to look at pages again. Cause it's so pretty him just flowing through the city with his moon-shaped cape, is this spectacular? The art was amazing. Those there's like so many glam shots that like two-page spread. 
of him and it's just like ah they're so good like almost there's a whole bunch of them i also thought the art in this issue was like so good well and that's kind of the thing about moon knight it really is a book where the art has to be explicitly excellent because we all recognize moon knight by his visuals anything less than the most eye-catching visuals fail the character when you've got greg smallwood when you've got declan shavley whose name i can never say right declan shalvey when you have <laughs> artists like you know right after the top of his game doing work on things like daredevil and filling in on new avengers you had alex maleev come in and do a run now that run is probably my least favorite due to a problematic trope of you know fridging women but that's another conversation for another day you know you have jerome pena you have so many enormously talented artists in the history of the character that if you don't provide somebody who is capable of this upper level execution it's immediately going to show that the thing you know this character for best big moon cape doesn't work i think something that really worked for me besides the pencils were the colors and as rod said that uh, people's skin tones were worked very well but most importantly like for moon knight just for him is that the contrast between the dark and his white suit was spectacular. You know, the, all the spreads and in the office and without out talking with, with the psychiatrist. I think it worked really well how, how the light came off of his suit. And yeah, if, if that didn't work, the comic, the whole story would, you know, nobody would like it that much. Because the whole thing about Moonlight is white in a sea of black, right? Yeah. yeah, as corny as it is, he like that is like his thing is that he wants to be seen. And uh, and so like if you have kind of shitty art with that, then it's like, but like, <laughs> you know, it's kind of co- contradictory. I, I think my favorite like sequence, like art and story in this whole book is starting with page 13 where the little old lady comes into his office and she's like, they're trying to take us away at night. And then you go into the next page and it's this full out horror look where Vermin is taking, Vermin and his clones are taking on Moon Knight and you know just like the difference in the art the difference in the colors everything works and then when you get to the end he's like you know i took out one of you because you took one of my people but like you have a choice and what choice are you gonna yeah like how he fades into black as like as he gets more threatening and you just see the whites of his eyes and the moon that's really cool and i feel like my favorite part of that it's whole sequence oh, the, the whole book maybe is more facetious favorite part is like i'm not super i mean I'm superman oh my god i'm not <laughs> spider-man <laughs> i'm moon knight and i don't die and i was like yes you're not spider-man because you're awesome well spider-man's awesome too no shade but like moon knight is a badass and he like really takes care of the villains which is probably not the best thing to do sometimes but still <laughs> no i i like that line about him not dying because in the uh, shalvi Valera and the other guys run there's a line that mark says to someone that i died once and it was boring so i came back and i think that line defines him as a character and you really feel feel that in in that fight just wanted like a little parenthesis and to jump back a second to the color conversation, one of the things that you guys keep pointing out is how much you love the stark contrast of the white on black. And the way that it is achieved is such a symbiotic relationship between the inker and the colorist, right? The inker has to know to use less deep, heavy, severe black in some places so that when black is used to contrast with the white, the black pops more. The same thing then has to be done with the whites. You can never get too close to a clean, clean white. I mean, 
you have to use varying shades so that when you do use such a crisp white to pop off the page at that level, there's nothing around it that contrasts it. So it really is an incredible dance between the scripting, laying out where those moments should pop, the penciler making sure that they stay in context for the next two layers of work, even though that's not his part of the work. I think it's, it's the same inker as the artist. I, I don't have inkers on the credits. That's a really good point. So that's also the truth of Marvel these days, whereas it's still so much the inker. But then it's still the same thing where it's, you know, the inker slash penciler working so extensively with Rochelle Rosenberg to get that perfect symmetry of depth of blacks and lightness of whites that allows for the contrast to transport you somewhere else. It's almost otherworldly because he's so white with such crisp <laughs> black starkness and that sense of Kaskuro is one of the things that highlights the dichotomy of Moon Knight's self as well. And I think that's part of why the imagery works so well for us. It's so stark no matter what. I mean, I definitely agree. I love that art one-on-one we just got from Nico and John. Thank you so much. <laughs> I was I was like just sitting here like, ooh. I'm it was actually it. fascinating. I love it, that. History it was, it was well, really because, fascinating. Yeah, we, we even really do have it. There's the page where he's talking to the guy in, with the glasses. Is, who is wearing the doctor, a doctor? Is it Doctor Vader? Doctor Bader? Doctor Secret Bad Guy? And he is yeah. wearing a white vest. Doctor Hottie Pants. And then, but Moon Knight is also wearing white, but his white is whiter than the white vest, and the white vest has like a lot more shading, and the parts that aren't shaded the white is still always lighter, like you said, Nico, to Moon Knight. So on the page, Moon Knight has to be (laughs) the whitest thing, even if another character has white on them. That white can't be as white as Moon Knight. This way, Moon Knight is otherworldly. Yep. Exactly. Because he's shiny. He's shiny like the moon. Jed McKay is known for, in his little, in his series that he's done so far, in bringing a lot of, you know, guest appearances from, you know, the characters past or just characters that we know. He's done that a lot in Black Cat. Who would y'all, if you could pick one character to show up in this series, who would y'all want to guest star? I think for me, part of the problem is Moon Knight's crisis is never of other. His crisis is always of self. Even when his struggles and conflicts are struggles of other, they are still conflicts of self. And Moon Knight has been to Paris and he's been to Rome, but he's never been never to Never been him. to me. Exactly. So I really want to see Moon Knight have a chance to work with himself. And for that, I think he could use the help of a top tier, either psychic or magician. And I think uh, Nico of the Runaways would be a pretty cool character to see kind of spread her wings throughout the marvel universe and find herself in some new places i'm not up to date on the events of runaways but i feel like we could maybe find a way to have her character guest spot in a high profile book in a way that's positive female asian queer representation i i would say that would be a little difficult with how runaways is right now but i would love it For me, I think it's kind of inevitable that this will happen, Um, but I'm thinking, and it's not one person, the Midnight Suns, so like Doctor Strange, Blade, and Ghost Rider, 
should be there like we said before that's who you know he hangs out with them from time to time and yeah so i i know she's already actually set up to guest star i think at issue four tigra because they have a history they are both they I, and i kind of want to see it like become a little partnership because one i want more tigra but two like they both have this weird connection with their their gods or or the creature that gives them their powers i don't know i just want to see more of hunter like hunter moon because like now every time i like see hunter moon i'm going to be singing like sailor moon but hunter moon in my head so <sighs> killing moon night hunter moon <laughs> John, who would you want to guest star? Mm, you remember when Spider-Man showed up in Daredevil in about issue 15 or so of, mm-hmm. of the chip run last year? Yeah. So I, I'm thinking that Spider-Man's going to show up because he also does the same job and, and Daredevil does the same job. So I'm hoping those two guys show up. I don't because also of the Bendis run where with a whole really weird that he believed he was uh, Spider-Man, Cap, and I think Wolverine. Wolverine. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, that's gonna be interesting. But I think Daredevil and Spider-Man. I hope. I hope they show up. And you know who nobody fucking said? Echo. And you know why? Because Echo should never be put in a Moon Knight book ever again. Ever. Period. No, keep Ever. the Phoenix away from Ever. Moon Knight. Oh, keep no, the no, no, no. That's Moon not Knight. why. It's because Bendis went ahead and fridged Echo in the pages oh, yeah, of right. Moon Knight, and oh. she had to be returned in the pages of Daredevil almost a decade later. Ooh, I oh, I didn't even wow. think about that. I'm just thinking about the last uh, Fist of Conchu at, like, <laughs> oh, no. and, like... <laughs> I'm still pretty angry that Moon Knight was used as a vehicle to kill a woman to further a white man's story. It was, and she I did not was know a, that. A disabled woman of color. And they did it. I'm going to get too angry. I'm going to calm down. <laughs> well, I did not know that, but I, I'm assuming she won't show up because she is the Phoenix now. So it's a too too high caliber for Moon Knight. I mean, he did just have that run where he kind of took the Phoenix, but well, he took the Phoenix. Keep my eye away from. Yeah, him. <laughs> yeah. So he he's 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 downgraded now. You know, he's he's back to his level. Um, I I forgot that Tigra. I did see the solicits, and I forgot that Tigra um, or Tigra. Yeah, I call her Tigra, like like Tiger. Tigra, Tigra. I've heard it so many different ways that I'm just like I'll just pick whichever one today I want. To. Okay, Tigra. Yeah, I I I do like that that she you know does answer to a, a different god as well and. Speaking of people that answer to kind of like different gods and get their powers, I would like, I think, um, I think Snowbird has that as well, right? Am I wrong? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah Snowbird is a, Snowbird is half god. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I feel like him dealing with other like godlike characters or in that kind of aspect, since this has started off with such like a religious aspect. And then we're getting Hunter's Moon, who is also trying to do like better for his God because the other Ooh. disciple, quote unquote, isn't doing well. I feel like mixing other, you know, religious type deities together to help Moon Knight or find clarity in what he's doing would be very interesting. <gasps> oh, now you've got me really wanting. So like way back in the original Off of Flight, I think it's like issue eight. They had like a issue where Snowbird was fighting in the snow and it was like almost like all white. All white. Issue. Yeah. Yeah. So that, like now I want so Moon Knight keep up with this page (laughs) moon knight's done it it's been done before where it's essentially white pages with outlines it's been done yeah i I, we could do it again these artists they're already fantastic i want to see their take on that yeah i only i only meant there's precedent i only meant there's (laughs) precedent (laughs) 
Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Now in this next segment, this Terry Bloss interview was such a blast to do. This is a repost from over on our YouTube channel where you can actually check out an over hour-long version of this same interview with our faces full of visuals and a bunch of funny sight gags. But here's a cut down that made sense for the podcast, so those of you who want to check out what's over on the Daily X can get a sense of things over there. And until next time, guys, we love making this show for you every week. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we'll see ya. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hi, and I'm Rod. You can find me at Rod, the, on Twitter and Instagram. Hey, it's Nathan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Desler AOA. We're here today to talk to not just one of my favorite people in comics, but somebody that it's just been really tremendous getting to see grow into who he's become. You guys probably know him from releasing that amazing jumbo carnation reference in the second issue of reptile but otherwise the rest of us know him as terry hey terry hello hi thanks for having me okay so now i know that we're an x-men show and this is reptile but you know like i'm gonna i'm gonna make an argument here there could have been no avengers academy without the help of the x-men paving the way new mutants being a really seminal book for marvel right and i feel like who reptile is is birthed of a welcomeness to diversity that the youth titles of Marvel have, right? So I think we got to start there before anything else, just to make sure we're all in a relaxed, comfortable, conversational place. Favorite youth book at Marvel, maybe now, maybe ever, whatever works for you. I know for me, it'll always be Claremont and Sienkiewicz on New Mutants. That will always be my happy place when it comes to young Marvel. What's your guys' either current favorite or historical favorite Marvel youth book? It'll be cheesy. I love New Mutants, but Power Pack. I used to love power pack so much like oh those kids <laughs> I think like a horse that. yeah <laughs> i'm gonna go more recent and i'm gonna say strange academy oh I, feel, I love that book a lot and i feel like more people should be talking about it and i feel like it's gonna go down as one of the greats so strange academy well and now terry i mean i know you're the newest to our airwaves but you are certainly the guest of honor today we have <laughs> a little new mutants we have a little power pack we have some strange academy some of it birthed of wheezy some of it you know completely new and beautiful where do you land my favorite youth or teen title is probably historically the generation x title from the 90s i was super obsessed as a kid with like weird like edward scissorhands and then to have this red mutant that looked like edward scissorhands show up in that book kind of did everything for me but i also loved the dynamic with all the characters well i didn't love they kind of demoted jubilee to this team but i loved m and i loved chamber and husk and just the way that everybody in that kind of group interacted with each other and the way that we got to sort of get to know Emma Frost a little bit differently too. You know, I love that you said that because a number of us are pretty big Chamber fans. So, you know, I really love that we're here to talk about such an important youth character. I know Nathan, myself, and Rod, we're all really attached to the next generation of Marvel, the power of diversity, the power of inclusion, and the way that it's not just dynamically reshaping the Marvel universe, but the way it's creating an inclusive world for readership, right? How did it feel getting to write a Hallmark Latino character as a Latino man. I mean, it was sort of like the dream that I never thought would actually 
<laughs> come true. Um, I recently tweeted something about a conversation that happens in issue two, like it, that it was difficult for me to grasp that I might have had anything to do with a conversation about, you know, Mexicans in a Marvel book that I just never would have seen coming. It, it was interesting because in so in one of your previous episodes, when you're talking about Reptile, I do listen. <laughs> Somebody said, I think it was unique. I said something about like, you know, when a Latino queer person gets to write something for Marvel, it could potentially become so, sort of something like Kitchen Sink, where you, you know, this might be your only chance to, to write for a company like this or to, to sort of, you know, delve into the characters with this big platform. And unfortunately, I do think that sometimes that does happen where you're like, okay, okay, this is my only chance. I'm going to throw everything I can into it. And when I pitched the story, I was like, well, sorry, there has to be a queer kid in this then. And there also has to be a girl with magic powers. <laughs> and <laughs> so they seem to go for it. And my excuse was like, well, he's Mexican. He has to have cousins. Who's he going to talk to? <laughs> right. Like, like, you know, thousand nice. of them. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very interesting sort of feeling. And I, in some ways, I still don't think it's kind of hit me. Um, there's some good stuff coming up that is about a little bit more about representation and whatnot. But I didn't necessarily, you know, I didn't want it to feel like preachy about, um, about sort of Latinx or Mexican representation. But at the same time, when I was approached about writing the character, my first thought was, well, my first thought was like, yes, of course, I'll do this. I don't care who it is. But <laughs> my second, my second thought was like, I've never heard of this character. And I really hadn't because I was more of a young Avengers fan. And I'd read all that, you know, run of young Avengers. And I didn't even know about Avengers Academy and Christos um, Gage killing it every month. Right. And I, did, and I didn't even awesome. know about it. I mean, obviously I've read all of it now. And I had to do, like, <laughs> preparation for, you know, the, um, the writing the book. But I thought if this character is Mexican American and he's a teen and so much of my work, which is probably why I was approached is, you know, skews very young adult um, and he could turn into dinosaurs. I thought, then why doesn't everybody know about him? <laughs> like he should be the most popular character for kids in Marvel yeah. if he can turn into dinosaurs. And so I thought then this book kind of does have to be about representation, which is maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but which is why Julian sort of has this conversation in issue two with him about like, you know, who are you a hero for then? If you don't want to use your powers, like we kind of need to see that. So yeah, it was a really interesting opportunity and I'm really happy that they even thought of me. <laughs> and like, I've never felt more represented as a Latino man in my life. Now we all have a shared friend. Maybe he's Rod's friend the best or something. I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps, you know, Juan is mostly Probably. Rod's and the rest of us just get to be hangers on. Yes. <laughs> this is the most represented I've ever felt by a comic ah. book character, my precious Robbie Reyes. And this is the fact that they made a fucking Lego set of the Latino <laughs> Ghost Rider. And if it weren't for Rod and Juan, I never even would have known it existed. And so not to tangentially like go somewhere, but all I want out of all I want out of this is a reptile action figure. Yes. And, and I yeah. feel like as, as you know, don't they have the Marvel Legends things where like they come with separate pieces of other yes. things too? So like why not have a reptile figure that you can remove his arms and you can remove his legs and attach different dinosaur, you know, parts to him? I, I love that you're <laughs> pitching your own action figures. This is everything oh my God. to me. I mean, I don't know if you could I mean, maybe you can't see. They're probably all up here. But I have like a decent amount. And I just think that, you know, if the point is to sell books so you can make more books, and if part of that is about selling toys, I mean, sure, that can be sort of, you know, corporate and whatever. But I, I love playing with action figures as a kid. My teen, my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles played with, you know, they rode My Little Ponies into battle. 
<laughs> they fought He-Man as he was riding like some She-Ra horse, you know. So yeah, I didn't I just have an Electra figure, but I had a Babs Bunny figure that was inexplicably the same <laughs> size as my Daredevil figure. So she was just Electra. It was fine. So if you don't know this, I will give you an amazing little piece of information right here. Is that Battle Cat's armor? Actual his like mask actually fits on My Little Pony. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> the old, okay. The old, the old <laughs> Yay! The old school ones. Yeah. Well, now let nice. me ask a question. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna be adorable for a second, but like it's actually a really great time for like inclusion in toys and figures. Yeah. And one of the people I know who collects toys and figures the most is Rod. And Rod, as somebody who doesn't just collect toys and figures, you're someone who collects toys and figures and searches for diversity and inclusion and representation. You mm. don't want to waste your money on the same you know white bread milk wonder toast superhero that's not your <laughs> shit right so you know in exactly accordance with what terry's saying this idea that a character who is so underrepresented that even you know a dynamic voice and not like to i'm not trying to put shit on you here and like make you feel away at all terry but like one of the voices like queer representative voices in comics today didn't know i meant latino but i said queer good for us one of the latino <laughs> representative voices <laughs> right you're both of those but reptiles only one so <laughs> <laughs> you were unfamiliar with, you know, Reptile and, and what a crazy disconnect that is. You know, Rod, as somebody who collects these toys actively, is that something you look for? I know, like, I bought the Miguel O'Hara Lego when I saw him immediately because it was the Latino Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, definitely. I mean, look what I'm wearing right now just for this, even though you can't see it because my camera's placed weird. But yeah, this is Juan's, my fiance, Chango ATX. Um, he's also a Latinx man, people that don't know him. Um, this is his shirt um, that he got, I think, inspired by the Reptile comic because we didn't have any dinosaur shirts. So, but yeah, I mean, with the with the action figures, I would love a Reptile action figure. We don't have that many Latinx action figures. I look, I scour the the land for any Black action figures. Like we got the Riri Funko finally, and I got her figure. And I look for all the Storm figures and everything else. And I even got the Shuri from the MCU. I'm even tempted to buy the Time Cops from Loki. And I don't even, I don't even want them, but they're black women. So I'm like, I kind of have to get them. So I'm like- Did they ever make any Dora Malaji like figurines? Yes, they did, but they are super rare and super expensive. Um, which I appreciate, like, yay, they got value, but also I wish they would have mass produced them so everyone could have them. It's why, yeah. I, it's why as soon as I saw them make the sword pendant, I had to buy it because I was not going to miss out on an amazing piece of photon paraphernalia. Yeah. I got to represent it's my job, right? Exactly. Now, Nathan, I have a question for you. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to surprise anybody with this, um, but you're white. And oh. <laughs> we're no. living in an amazing age of Latino representation in comics. You have in the last two months covered America Chavez. You have covered Reptile now. You have covered uh, Robbie Reyes sort of roundabout in the fact that we've done Heroes Reborn. <laughs> and also he's been at the gala, you know, as as a, in all intents, you know, as an ally on the outside. How does it feel getting to see a group that you've championed and that, you know, you've seen, want to see more of, right? How does it feel getting to see that come do as an ally on the outside? Does it feel like a res- 
responsibility to keep supporting it? Uh, are you ready to champion other people? Are you like enough of these Latins? Is that just, oh, you know? uh, no, it's, um, it's, it's a really nice feeling to see people who I know and love and deal like, and work with and live with every day, having them have a chance to get represented in comics. Um, I know how important it was to me as a kid, even though I hated the character to have the character of North star be out and just like how much that meant to have an out gay superhero so i just i love that and i'm going to continue championing every bit of the diversity i can because i mean we we have to we have to we have to yeah the only you know, way to do. i hear you say you know you you need to keep championing these things and how important it was formative for you that you know north star was gay i guess and um <laughs> you know terry that kind of brings me to a question for you how did skin as a latin american in the pages of gen x now i'm not trying to i i have no gripes with gen x i am a big gen x fan i love the characters i do feel though that because starting in issue 25 there started to be that sort of very unfortunate handoff james robinson did three issues followed very quickly by larry hama who's a genius larry hama is a genius whom i love but i do not know that in 1997 i said to myself larry hama has his finger on the pulse of what's young and hot and hip like i don't know that that was necessarily the right move there right uh as you know so skin wound up kind of background he wound up really after that really great issue with uh gen x on the road uh with the stanley introduction yeah. right after that i don't think skin mm. saw a whole lot of action until he was just sort of you know um epidermid so i how does it feel to you as somebody getting to sort of correct that path a little bit getting to have a little bit more of that brown sound playing through the book i mean it feels great i think i was i mean i was so excited to see that one panel of skin at the hellfire guy I was like, wait, so he's there? So he's around? Like, I don't know anything, you know, about his recent anything. Um, and yeah, I think that I'm of the mind of representation at any cost. And, and that may sound strange, but- Burn the know, patriarchy. I a, well, I mean, I was on a panel once where someone was like, okay, is bad representation better than no representation? And I was like, well, yeah, because at least yeah. bad representation means that you can now have a conversation about what could be better. If there's nothing there, then how do you- how do you start that conversation that that conversation is just we need it so yeah it feels really good and I feel like with Reptil I I wanted to include more intersectionality in terms of like Julian's character being Latino and, and queer and you know Eva being a young woman who is Mexican and I, I you know we don't see too many representations of that in Marvel there's like Spider Girl and I think she's like Mexican and Puerto Rican and you know and there's a couple oh, other Aranya? characters yeah. yeah I um, love Aranya oh she's so I great I really like her too um but yeah, I just wanted to be, I guess for lack of a better way of saying it, I wanted to be accurate because the fastest growing demographic in the United States is the college educated Latina. And when we are the largest ethnic minority group in the country and we number almost 20% of the country and we have 2% representation in books, movies, you know, at TV, everything, it, it's not accurate to me. So if I'm going to set this in Los Angeles, a place that likely has more Mexicans than white people, then it's got to be a very Mexican book. You know, my favorite show of all time is Buffy the Vampire Slayer and I'm like this takes place in Southern California where are all the Mexicans like there's a single one exactly I mean until season 7 when we get Kennedy and then we're like okay fine whatever but like does she count <laughs> okay <laughs> like she, she doesn't she really count. count but she was rich which which gave me this like when earlier we were I think we we're mentioning maybe not in this podcast but we were talking about Desperate Housewives like that was the first time I saw a rich Latino on American television the richest family uh, on the block was Mexican well, but you know? let's That's let's dial true. into this because I actually I'm in the middle of a Desperate Housewives rewatch. And <laughs> let me stop always. you. Let me stop you because only on this podcast do I think.
think we get tangents where we, especially in that previous episode, where you drop out of a reptile review to start talking about Golden Girls and designing women. <laughs> so I'm here for it. That's, that's I'm all here for it. <laughs> yes. The trashiest family on the street are the Northeast white people. Oh, yeah. Angie Bolin in, uh, in season six is the trashiest thing to ever happen to Wisteria Lane. Which, by the way, if you read Wisteria Lane, like um, Twin Peaks, where it's actually an evil street that's eating these people it takes on an entirely transformative new work mm-hmm. right beyond that that's actually one of the reasons i champion devious maids now i understand that a lot of people didn't really appreciate it but it's one of those things where like i know that i'm a very white presenting and very white skinned latin man there's no question about that but i don't know what that's like at all <laughs> <laughs> but you know i still grew up in the culture and i still grew up with that part of my family is a huge part of my family and there are so many things in Devious Maids and Desperate Housewives and, uh, you know, even slices of Carla from Scrubs and, you know, anywhere where we sort of sneak in that little bit of Latino, right, that just so resonates with me. I think one of the most formative things for me as a kid was every single one of John Leguizamo's uh, one-man specials. I had them all memorized and I I could stand there and do them for myself in the mirror. And it just, there was something about feeling like they spoke my code, right? That they could do the code switching with me that I know many black comedians have said is what Chris Rock represented for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many Asian comedians and generally drag queens have said Margaret Cho has represented for them. And I feel like it is so important when someone speaks your code. And I know that Rod and Nathan, that's like one of the things that you two speak about the most, especially with this funny enough where I met Terry, we were opposite Vita Ayala at FlameCon. Mm. And I know we talk a lot about Vita on the show now. They are on every book. Uh, on oh. on the planet <laughs> and so you know how do you guys feel when you see some and this is open to everybody terry you can have more opinions uh but how do you guys feel when you see somebody capable of code switching like that and dialing into the experience i mean i think it's really in um a pure talent to code switch because not everyone can do it i mean a lot of pe- uh, people of color are are trained to do it i would say just um just like in their families are just by society and not even by choice are they might not even have knowledge of it of that they're doing it just because you know they have to even i mean even not even this the people of color like this is talking about the lgbtq plus community as well like i know not to walk a certain way or to act a certain way in certain types of areas because then i will be called a slur or will be you know not really in where i live now but where i used to live (laughs) like chased down or anything like that so are I would say in like certain works that I've had in the past, like certain jobs, if I talk a certain way, they're like, oh, well, Rodney's black side is coming out. I've heard that my whole life. So I don't have a black side, I don't have a white side. I am just me. I'm not half and half, I'm all of it. Um, I can joke about that, that I'm half and half, but I'm not, it's just a mix, you know? So, but yeah, I feel like that's that, that just goes along with it. Like you have to act a certain way to protect yourself. I think we all have to code switch in our own ways because just to, to fit in with society in, in general. Um, and and I, it's, a, it's a skill that you learn because you have to, not because you really want to. And it's awful that we have to 
do it, but we have to do it. And it's just how we have to do. And, you know, Terry, not to harp on one thing, but I've said it like 80 times and I'm going to continue to say it probably as a guy who worked for the Disney parks and a Latino who has gotten on the train in Oceanside and taken the train straight to Anaheim and then had to get in the taxi to go the 2.3 miles to make it to Disneyland. But I had them drop me off half a mile from the gate right around the candy cane in. And then I walked the rest of the way down because I wanted to go through the gate. Right. But as somebody who feels that way about Disney, the Disneyland is Mexican Disneyland is the most honest, real to my life thing I have read maybe ever. I, I was stunned. It was one of those, this is for me. And unfortunately, and I mean, not unfortunately, but like fortunately, but unfor- I know you. So like, I both know it isn't for me and just that we have things in common. So it's like, I'm not that special, but it's like. <laughs> I mean, that's, that speaks to what I'm said about, I think accuracy is that when I go to Disneyland, most people I see there are Latino, <laughs> or, you know, or they're members of the Latinx community. And I just didn't want, I don't know, like, I think to say something like, you know, Santiago is the Mexican Disneyland and to have one of them be like, no, that's just Disneyland. <laughs> like, you know, it doesn't need to have that sort of qualifier. It's just, that's, that's just how it is there. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that I wasn't sure if I could get away with that, but I was like, well, aren't y'all owned by Disney now? So can't I just say Disney? And I don't think there was any pushback to it. So yeah. Speaking of, of pushback, I am, su- I'm not surprised that it's in the book because it is comp books and you can <clears throat> get away with saying a lot more things and, be, and the world's become more progressive slowly but surely as it is. But I was really impressed with the things that you put in issue two. As like I tweeted or whatever, I was like, this is the future of comics because <laughs> of two parts. Because of the first page, I believe it was the first page, when he's with his parents and they're like, he's like, why is this dinosaur named that? You know, I don't remember the dinosaur's name because it's too, I can't say that. <laughs> I can't read that. His, but, mom, his mom was like, you can say it. I know. She was co-op-less. To him, not to me. Yeah, I can't. To him, not to I, you. My accent, my tongue, it doesn't let me do it. But <laughs> I was really impressed because you were like, just because you're not, you didn't grow up in Mexico or just because you are still Mexican and you should still, this is how we show our imprint in the world. Like, this is how we know that we matter because we're giving, you know, our words and our language with these dinosaurs and this like common things that are happening in the world are going, just like could be in a museum and they're gonna be like looking up that name, where the name came from, the culture and everything. And then also the bigger part of number two is I say this to people all the time and I was so surprised that I actually saw this in the comic book from you is talking about the laws. They're like, well, slavery, you know, used to be legal. So it doesn't mean that all the laws that are legal are great, are correct, you know? And I've never seen that in a comic book before. And I was truly impressed. And so my question, getting down to it, (laughs) were you a little, I guess, scared to put that in? Were you think you were going to get pushed back from that? I mean, no, I wasn't scared to put it in. I guess for the first part where he's with his parents, so much of the book is is about Mexican pride. So Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, I was like, why am I going to be the person writing this if you're not going to let me put that in there? You know, this is a Mexican character. But part of my pitch was including all that all that stuff. And I didn't receive any pushback from, you know, editorial or anything. They they were terrific. I felt like including that like little moment about your heritage and about uh, being proud 
proud of who you are is part of his journey. I don't think he's ashamed that he's Mexican, but in the context of the Marvel universe, I asked them when I pitched the book, well, what's happening with, you know, young heroes right now? And that's when Kamala's Law came up. And so I read everything I could about that. And I said, well, this is a good opportunity then if he kind of hulks out as a full dino and can't control it, then he might be like, all right, grandpa's getting older. I can't control my powers. And the idea that he's a teenager can now seep in with like, cool, I'm going to catch up on my anime. I'm going to play video games. I'm just going to like chill, be a 16 year old and focus on that. Obviously it doesn't go that way. (laughs) But Julian telling him, you know, how are we supposed to believe in a better world when we don't see anyone out there that looks like us representing us out there? That for me was important. But him having that conversation about, you know, it's good to be like Kamala's law and then to have him be like, that's over. That's done. That's not, I mean, right now, technically, I guess it's paused in the Marvel universe. They're like reworking it in Champions and seeing what's happening with it. But I wanted him to call his cousin out a little bit and be like, that's an excuse. He's like, just because something's legal doesn't mean it's right. Sort of my way to say like, there's still Latinx kids in cages in this country. Um, You know, and I, when we were talking earlier about that representation and seeing yourself reflected back, I didn't see myself reflected in any kind of media until I was an adult and there was a gay Mexican boy on Ugly Betty. So, you know, I wanted kids to be able to kind of see this and and I wanted I wanted maybe queer Latin kids too. I know that the audience, the intended audience maybe isn't queer Latin kids for this book, but if a queer Latin kid did come... Let's hold on a minute. Because I think it is actually... There's some some out there, obviously. Size transformation (laughs) powers, hot young, you know, Latin skin boy with dark features. Come on, that's every gay Latin kid's thing. Right. But we can see it that that way. But I'm sure that like Reptile as a straight character, they, you know, whatever. I wanted them to see like, oh, this kid, meaning Julian, is smart. And he potentially is his cousin's hero, if you think about it. Like he's the one that is making sense here. And um, Reptile or Beto. I I say Beto as much as I can, mainly because I didn't want to type Umberto a million times as I was writing the script. (laughs) (laughs) But we also use a ton of nicknames in Mexican culture. So Beto, Betito, like whatever. Um, yeah, I wanted the idea that like maybe maybe, maybe Reptile's heroes are his family because of what they do for him. So yeah. And you know, anyway. to compare it to something really real for a minute and to be that like, there's that incredible piece by uh, Frederick Douglass from like 1856, which is, you know, am I to explain to you what a slave is? Am I explaining to you why this is wrong? What part of this do you need light shed? You know, that incredible speech he gave for like July 5th, 1850-something. It was, you know, to hear something in 2021 so actively reflect the ideals of an abolitionist speech from the 1850s, first of all, troubles me terribly that we need it, but secondly, makes it so important and makes it such a, a dynamic Signif- you know, signifier. And I understand that you're saying, you know, Reptile isn't like the gay queer book, but it is. I mean, it is a and, little bit now. <laughs> yeah. And you know, there are so many gay queers. Whoa, there are so many queer Latinos that I just can't do it, right? Uh, there's so many queer Latinos that, you know, when I think about High School Musical, the musical, the series, the best time of my Friday, I think about Carlos. And I think about how Carlos is the most Latino gay kid ever. 
And I think about how, you know, it's, it's, I kind of flash to Legally Blonde even. Don't go stomping your last season product shoes at me, honey. Like, I go to this sort of idea that the probably femier gay Latino man is sort of an accepted archetype in mm. culture. And I feel like we probably get an unreasonable amount of attention paid as gay Latinos over perhaps gay Black men, over perhaps gay Asian men. So I feel like in that we are oversaturated, we are a market. And I feel like we are coming out to buy your book. So I, I, I there's so much I want to say. I hope so. I'm <laughs> but, like, I hope um, so. I, I guess I'll say that this conversation that we're essentially having about femininity versus machismo in the Latinx community will come up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's all. That's all I'll say. Good. That's all I'll say. <laughs> I will, will say it will come up. <laughs> I will say I am. I wanted to wait to tell you this in person because obviously we are friends, and I could tell you this over another way. But especially with what you just said before, uh, I pre- I really appreciate it as inspiring that you weren't you know that you said this in this book and you weren't scared to say it because you know it we shouldn't be scared to say it and it's and it, I feel like that that what's gonna come like you said you kind of hinted at the machismo thing and then what what you already said in the last two issues i feel like it will inspire other um people of color creators writers artists everything to want to you know speak out more or draw like you know create something that speaks out more you know not be so afraid and be like well i'm going to say this and it's real it's it's factual and if you don't like it well that's tough because that's what's happened and we should be hearing lil nas x yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think, I mean, I don't think every character who is, say, Mexican necessarily needs to talk about being Mexican. But until we have enough Mexican characters that we don't have to think about that and those issues aren't issues anymore, then yeah, he's going to talk about it because <laughs> exactly. it's important and it needs to be heard. And I feel like if, if there's a Mexican superhero out there, how are they not going to be, you know, affected by these issues? Of course they would be. So yeah, thank you. I appreciate you saying that <laughs> no problem i do have a question or one for my fiance is about to say husband we're not married yet not yet so, not yet maybe next year and i'll say something different um but he wanted to ask and i think it kind of got answered already from you um undeliberately but he was going to ask why um why reptile but i feel like as you were kind of saying reptile was kind of given to you correct so how did i come to the book yeah because like, he was saying like there's there are other latinx characters more a little bit more known yeah and he was like and you didn't know reptile so how why and how i was researching her character just because i felt like she's a character with a history she doesn't quite remember and she's mexican so i was like that's interesting that that could be a good story never thinking i would work for marvel just kind of like oh i wonder one day if i'm asked maybe i could be like well what about a hummingbird series and my agent emailed me out of the blue and she was like hey check this out and they the editorial staff or two editors at Marvel approached my agent asking if I would be interested in pitching they were very specific they said a, a four issue series about this character Reptil because they wanted to give him a solo series and like I said I was like one yes of course I'll do it two who <laughs> like what <laughs> um, and so then I started researching and wrote up a pitch for four issues but yeah that's sort of how it came to me I believe that the editor the direct editor she had read Hotel Dare which is my mm. independent 
independent book with boom which is like a fantasy ya family adventure for mexicans and had liked it and so that's sort of why she thought of me but you know they said they were clear they said you know we're gonna be talking to a few other people and you know you're not the only person that we're asking this for so you know send us in a pitch and then we'll like let you know i'm so type a that i was like all right i read everything i could find in two days and then typed up four issue pitch and sent it in because i thought okay it doesn't have to be perfect but if it's good enough you know editors are editing so many books especially at a company like marvel but i was like if this is good enough they're gonna be like cool good we don't have to go looking for anybody else this works and that's what i did and they offered it to me so that's why that's why reptile because that's what came to me <laughs> now i do want to comment something about reptile that kind of ties into one of the ways in which uh you and i became friends uh it was one of the things we first talked about was the fact that we thought that one day at a time was the most accurate representation of latino life on television ever and one of the things i love about reptile is how it feels very conversation it feels very realistic dialogue and you know i think everybody kind of has different opinions on that we were just discussing x-men legends number four recently which is wheezy simonson returning to her x-factor run and there is a kind of a sense of the dialoguing is different the pacing is different there's a really sort of sense of different beats we're in an era of very deconstructed comics but we're in an era of deconstructed comics that still put a pretty heavy emphasis on as many pages looking as splash pagey print trading card as possible one of the things i definitely noticed here was you my friend made sure that your letterer was quite busy and it didn't feel like too much dialogue but it was definitely a higher word count than i necessarily feel the average marvel book kind of rings at is that something you do deliberately i mean like having been familiar with your you know your earlier work i can say that is sort of something you do you are not necessarily verbose uh but you like to fit your words to your page and i was wondering if that's a, an intentional decision and you know what you guys think as well on the panel about the evolution of comics especially for minorities where we need to pack in all those words because this is the only chance to be brown and gay that you know we need to fit every word on the page so terry from experience and rod and nathan from having brains <laughs> yeah right. i'm very word i'm very wordy i guess <laughs> when i write and it's an interesting balance because when you write an issue and you send in a script it's you know edited and reviewed and you go through an edit and turn it in again but then when you get the art and it's ready to be lettered you look at the script and you sort of you do a lettering pass right you go through and you go oh wait now this sentence here probably works better in the following panel or okay all of this doesn't fit in this panel anymore i gotta cut all this descriptor it's all gotta go Um, (laughs) exactly and so i think that it's a it's it's one of my favorite parts of the process is doing that lettering pass because then you get to refine stuff you get to be like well can we add in a line here that you know isn't wasn't there before um because now it helps this make more sense um but yeah i do think there's an element of um packing in as much as i can simply because i you know four issues isn't actually very long so like 80 pages that's nothing. yeah and i'm used to writing like a 160 page graphic novel um so it's a little bit difficult to sort of i think trim that down but it's a good lesson a good challenge and like well what's essential here to the story what needs to be said julian talking about darla deering and dazzler that needs to be said that stays in <laughs> so you know but there's some stuff that you know as since it's a comic should speak for itself that's the balance of the art and the words so yeah sometimes i've noticed that in my fight scenes i'm like oh they're hitting each other here and i didn't they don't, they're not saying anything all right 
maybe one of them should say something <laughs> and then I'll add something back in. But that's kind of how I approach it, I guess. Nice. I mean, I definitely, I haven't read your, your hotel book in about two, three years. So I need to reread it. But I remember you being very descriptive in it and I liked it, obviously. That's why I got the reptile book. And I was like, that's why I was excited for it. <laughs> but, but yeah, you are good at like, you know, getting to the point, but also educating the reader as they're going. And the reader isn't really left guessing unless you're meaning for them to guess, you know? So that's why I like what you're doing, Reptile. We already know so much, even if you haven't read any of the other Avenger Academy, Avengers Arena, any of that. You're, you you know who Reptile is. Yeah, I was going to say for me, it was it was the perfect introduction. Yes, I had read some of Avengers Academy because Danny Moonstar like showed up in like two issues. But like, <laughs> I, I was like, oh, Reptile, I had only read the Spider-Man one shot where he was with Spider-Man in um, King of Black. And I was like, oh my God, I want to read more about him. And then when this came out, I was like, yes, I got to read this. And it really helped fill in just the right amount of backstory on it. It really helped me get that knowledge of it. Now I'm going to go back and read Avengers Academy now and read all of it. So I'm like, <laughs> ha. Um, and it also like helped us to introduce to not only Beto, but like Eva and Julian who like, oh my God, I love Julian so much. Like, but um, it, it really The gay us. one and Zap Zap. And Zap Zap. Yeah. <laughs> I was the one who was like, no, he's got a name, guys. But I, I'm not good with names. I remember people by what they look like, either real or not real. So I will be like, like the guy back there. I, sometimes I forget shit. So I mean, it's not a disrespect to the character. It, I, I remember the character. So that's a, a respect for them. Yeah, See, I there you go. I think, we all, I think we all fell in love with the gay one in Zap Zap. So like, I, I just like that. And that's, that speaks to like how it worked, even though, yeah, maybe it was a little wordier than some books, but like we're actually able to see inside their soul like a little bit and like I, now I just want all the three of them to like have a like a series go on forever so yeah there was something interesting that I think was it Raven who was on your previous episode yes. brought up about like you know enjoying the fact that Julian didn't have to explicitly state that he's yes. gay if he is gay but that just he's queer and whatever and that's fine but I did find it sort of interesting that there's this there's this thing where do we have to state what he is I when as I wrote him I was like he's gay and I didn't necessarily want to be explicit about it but then I did have a conversation with my editor where they said you know if at some point in the series you aren't explicit about it that's fine but think about how in the future if another writer took on that character and you weren't explicit about it he's straight now yeah they could say like okay well then he's just queer maybe he's bi he didn't say and they could do that so do you want to be explicit at some point in the series so that you can make sure that he is the character you want to be and I was like oh that's so interesting to think about because you know we we sometimes don't want to I come from a generation I think that was like you know I want I, I want to be able to say I'm gay because that's not something that a lot of people get to say out in the open freely but the young generation today is like oh I don't want to label myself because that's right. not how I identify and that's fine both are valid but it was interesting to think in the context of an editorial you know setting in a story and a series that if you don't if you're not explicit about it it could change so I was like well no one's changing Julian <laughs> if, I can, <laughs> if I can help it sorry about it no one's <laughs> to no, be uh, yeah. if you do it okay well you've done it if you don't do it oh shit that means it just doesn't exist it means that it hasn't been made firm and somebody could be like well then no that never happened and it's a really complicated situation and I love that you had to measure your footprint as a creator and the way your name is going to appear on the marvel.com website and when somebody goes on wikipedia and they see you know Beto's cousin is queer issue three it's going to link back to you and like realizing that 
that that sort of like carbon dated footprint because he's a dinosaur right uh is <laughs> a really fascinating thing to hear you like dawn yeah um I, I would just say with julian i love the way you spliced in not only like our real world references but also marvel 616 pop culture references with dazzler this like, thing yeah you gotta bury this me with thing. like i need to be buried with dazzler solo album too so like ah uh, and I, so uh, yeah. i did want him to i did want him to initially mention like a male pop star because i think that you know as gay men we have our like divas and our pop divas that we like whatever but i i think a lot of that comes from maybe potentially this is a stretch but a little bit of internalized homophobia of not wanting to be vocal and open about the male rock stars or pop stars that we love and you know maybe because we find them attractive or whatever and that's why that's literally the reason that julian has a poster of a male pop star on his wall because i was like if he's not going to mention it we should at least show that he's not ashamed of the fact that he's gay and that he's into boys and he's got a poster right above his computer i i I couldn't pass up also the opportunity to like mention you know some x-men references since i am such an x-men nerd so to have dazzler in there and and then jumbo carnation um (laughs) yeah was something i definitely wanted to do and and while i was writing this i discovered uh darla deering's character i'd never heard of her either oh miss thing she's the best but i was like who is this pink-haired essentially katie perry of the marvel universe she's amazing but yeah that was was an amazing run at that i am doing a illustration of like a potential like darla deering album cover (gasps) oh cute oh my god i'll post that when it's done (laughs) i'm already coming up with names for her albums like obviously she has a self-titled one but i can't decide if her self-titled album is darla deering or miss thing (laughs) so i mean it could be called double eponymous and be both perfect yeah or maybe it's like a two-part album right speaker box and the love below exactly so we'll see anyway yeah i i did want to in that conversation mention like a male pop star but i think it's okay that it's dazzler and that he you know loves dazzler he's definitely my character that i love to write because of the things he he gets to say i think one of my favorite things in the issue too that he says is when they get to the pits and he's like you you have a lovely home here (laughs) oh my god that was funny i love how in issue two you're just like she is so intelligent and has studied so much that she can already do magic just by coming in contact with it like she hasn't really all she had to do was study and she taught herself all of this a lot of other magicians had to have like people you know get talked to them like even Ilya Rasputin had to have people teach her things but Eva is like doing it herself yeah that comes from I think like maybe not having the same resources as other people as you know as people of color Mm. we sometimes just got to do it on our own so I think she's probably like new well I guess in Marvel it's new tube so she's like new tube and you know how to do spells and she's like reading everything she can about about Doctor Strange and I did originally like come across the idea that I wanted to use maybe she knows someone at Strange Academy that's like secretly giving her books or something (laughs) but that was too much to you know kind of put in there in that conversation um but maybe that is happening we don't know it I don't know um but yeah I I wanted her to sort of represent for these like young intelligent Latinas who you know she's been studying magic 
for a long time, has never been able to do it. And so assumes that now that Beto's there and his amulet's magic, that like, that's why she can do it. And that's why I wanted the hag to be like, you know, oh, okay, I thought you were smart, I guess, whatever. <laughs> like, you know, basically she's telling her, you know, your power doesn't come from him. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, maybe enhanced because he's here or may have helped like spark your power, but it's 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 your power. It's not his power. So, yeah. And I wanted to jump back one second. When you had said that perhaps there's some amount of internalized homophobia that uh, kind of prevents the uh, accessing the male identity from a young gay audience. I also think a lot of that has to do with unprotected spaces and unsafe spaces. When you take a look at the actual success of like 80s metal, the band that was internationally probably the best known for many years was Judas Priest. And as soon as Rob Halford came out of the closet, they were erased from the history books. They went from the best-selling metal act like five years in a row to who the fuck is Judas Priest? And, you know, Rob Halford still has one of the most enormous vocal ranges in the history of metal music. But because certain ideals and certain ideas are not as readily accepted, I think we do see that sort of almost like internalized reflective homophobia as well. It's almost like we see their homophobic, so we push them away. And I actually think that really does in many ways reflect on kind of what you're saying about Eva and magic, because we're told, or we were told as gay men, we didn't belong in certain scenes. So we created an identity that was outside of that scene, right? Eva believes that she's never done magic before, so she can't do magic. So she automatically comes up with a connective logical reason that, oh, well, this is why, and that's how. So, okay, it's not really that I'm special. It's that someone else is special and I did okay. You know, it's not really that I'm not interested in metal. It's that I'm not welcome in metal. So it's whatever. And, you know, there's this sort of idea of reflective, uh, kind of like reflective culture that I think really echoes why all of the reasons you said this book was so important in the first place as well. Yeah, it's very that. I think that she probably did make those connective, logical sort of reasonings because of who she is. Um, There's also like a low-key Jurassic Park reference where the hag says she calls her a clever girl. But anyway. Oh, yeah. It's there, like maybe on a second read if you want to see it. It's not, it doesn't, I hopefully, you know, hopefully it's not distracting. But, you know, we've been talking about divas and we are a bunch of queers and that's a pretty big thing for divas. I know for me, I identify Tori Amos with Jean Grey. That's my number one and my number one. And then Mariah Carey is Emma Frost and uh, Janet Jackson is Storm. <laughs> and this is my happy place, right? But my question then becomes, which X-Man do you guys see as what diva? Like, are you just like, oh, Dazzler's obviously Kylie Minogue or in your heart of hearts is boom boom Britney. Where do you live? Is is Janelle Monet Monet Saint Croix? And can we just say Janelle Monet no, Saint Croix? Janelle Monet is Dazzler. I'm sorry, but so there's okay. an answer right there. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me, X Men, X Divas, Divas. For me, Rogue is Dolly Parton. <gasps> and you know, okay. uh, we just had the writer of the Rogue novel on, yes. and she just said, Alyssa Quitney just said uh, exactly that. So, oh, really? Thing, yeah. Nice. See, good. There we go. Yeah, I just think that Rogue's strength isn't necessarily her like physical strength, but in like you know g- resisting, succumbing to like all the trauma she's gone through. And so I think there's this like spirit in Dolly Parton where she just is positive and kind. And and yeah, I see because I initially kind of when I saw Rogue's Hellfire Gala outfit too, I was like. Mm, 
don't know. But then I was like, no, that's what a Southern <laughs> country, country woman, I think, would probably wear. That's fine. But yeah, so I think Rogue Dolly Parton. I ha- I'm going to have to think more about this. Okay, Betsy Braddock is Sophie Ellis Spector. Okay. I love that. I love, I love that. that. I can yeah. I can vibe okay. on that. Yeah. That's, I'm okay. about it. I, okay. Okay. I'm super basic. I'm going to say uh, Storm is Beyonce. Um, <laughs> I, like. I don't think yeah, there's man. anything basic about either of them. Uh, no. <laughs> 